Aren't TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. Three, two, convy. Hey, everybody. We're back, and we're so excited because tonight we're only going to speak of love, which I said last year, too, but we did only speak of love last year, so it's not like I'm lying. We're just going to do it again this year. And if you're joining us for the first time, this has become like sort of a new annual thing where we look at romantic TV movies. And last year we did uh, Men in Love with Older Women, and I can't remember the exact names of the movies. I think one was called In Love with an Older Woman. And the other one might have been called Anatomy of a Seduction. And we had a pretty good time with them. And this year, I really racked my brain to figure out what two movies would go really good together. And I ended up picking A Strange Double. I was kind of happy with it. Actually, I was really happy with it. But I feel like one of the films might have been better served by another film but i'll talk about about why i didn't choose that and um but i want to get us rolling we're having a lot of technical issues tonight so um i might sound a little scatterbrained which you probably won't notice because i think i sound scatterbrained every time i do this <laughs> so let's just get started um let me say what tonight's films are first of all my name is amanda again if i didn't say that um i'm here tonight with my friend dan hey dan what's up uh not much i'm ready to speak of love i've been waiting a year it's gonna happen let's <laughs> i know do i count the days I, I like put little hearts on the calendar yay and they get bigger and bigger as it gets closer <laughs> to the day <laughs> i really love these because it gives me an excuse to sort of watch these films that i've been wanting to see um and gives mm -hmm. me a platform to talk about them so um this is really exciting. Now, Nate couldn't make it this year, and ironically enough, he missed last year, and something yeah. tells me Nate doesn't want to speak of love, but um, mm -hmm. he, he did say he watched both films, and when he comes back, he's going to give us a five minutes with Nate, which I'm super excited about. because we It's been a while. Yeah. yeah, and he did watch both movies, so it should be uh, pretty interesting. I think we're both going to have, I don't know if we're going to agree on both films, but I definitely think it's they're going to be good conversations, because I picked two really interesting films, at least, if nothing yeah. else. So the uh, topic tonight is love, and our movies are Death Takes a Holiday, which is a 1971 remake of a 1934 movie that was a like an 18th century or 19th century play. That's really beautiful, I think. Um, and I paired it with something that I'd never seen before called Deadly Love, which is from 1995 and stars Susan Day. I realize I'm talking really fast, so people who aren't used to me, sorry. Um, it's just, it was, it's crazy in my head right now, so bear with me. Okay, deep breath. So I'd never seen Deadly Love before, but people have recommended it to me over the years. Um, lots of people, when I started my blog, said, have you heard of this movie? And I always thought it was a network TV movie. I was positive it was. Um, but then when I was able to get a copy of it, I realized it was actually a Lifetime original and one of their first. And this is really exciting because um, I'm not sure we've done, I feel like we've done one made for cable movie so far, but I can't recall what it could be. Was it Tory related? No, those were, see those, people call those Lifetime movies, but they actually were originally aired on like NBC huh. and CBS. I wonder which one. Um, but I feel like we may have already talked about a movie that was made for cable. A USA maybe. Network maybe, one, maybe? Maybe. Uh, I think maybe. But I, whatever. I can't remember the name of it. So anyway, I don't think this is the first time we've covered basic cable. But um, this is the first time we've done a Lifetime movie. 
And it, they, you know, Lifetime is a really interesting history. I think they get too much credit sometimes for their output because a lot of it was cherry picked from other places and we can talk about that. But um, this made an interesting double feature. Um, we The topic is supernatural love. So I will say that if people really like Death Takes a Holiday, I almost paired it with the movie called Sandcastles, which is another 70s TV movie with Jan Michael Vincent and Bonnie Bedelia. And I was very close to picking it, but it's really schmaltzy. Now, don't get me wrong. I love it. It makes me cry. I think it's beautiful, but it's also like pretty melodramatic. And I thought with Death Takes a Holiday, it might be too much of the same. And mm -hmm. so I was trying to avoid that. And I was desperate to watch Death Takes a Holiday again because I hadn't seen it since I was like five or six. And I'd watched it tons of times as a kid. And it really intrigued me, but I hadn't seen it since then. So I wanted to revisit it and see if I still had the same feels for it, which I do times 10. Um, and we can go into that. But so if anybody really liked Death Takes a Holiday and they're listening, go look for Sandcastles. I think you'll really like it. I just don't know that it would have worked so well on Dan and Nate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> diving into the, the waters of love can be really difficult if you go, you know, into the deep end first. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought I'd take us partway into the deep end and then a little bit back to the shallow end with Deadly Love. So let's see how we did. So I guess we should just get started. So... Dan, why don't you go ahead and tell us about Death Takes a Holiday. All right, Death Takes a Holiday um, aired October 23rd, 1971 on ABC. Director Robert Butler, teleplay Rita Larkin, adaptation Walter Ferris from a play by Alberto Casella. And the movie begins, a uh, lovely sort of coastline on a beach. And Yvette Mimu, 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 um, is uh, who plays a character named Peggy Chapman, is going to do a little snorkeling. She hits the water. She's having a good time. She gets caught in a kelp bank. And so she typical. Yes. And she seems to black out. Suddenly, she wakes up on the shore, still alive, with a topless Monty Markham oh, so staring good. at her. So good. And he, he's playing David Smith. And he rescued her, as he's rescued her. And she's very, she actually sounds a bit like Amanda sounds right now. She's very like, oh my gosh, no, 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 let me give you a kiss. Okay, ooh, ah, yeah, nah. let me, I, I'm Peggy Chapman, da, da, da. Oh, from a kiss to a handshake, that's interesting. And she's very, um, actually she acts like that a lot during the movie, apart from the moments when she slows down. Um, but that's sort of her character. And uh, David is saying, you know, his, I forget, his ship. It doesn't matter why he's there. He he's just makes an excuse and he's there. And she says, well, come on up and meet my family. And we learn that it's the Chapman family island. The Chapmans are an extremely wealthy family. The dad, uh, who's played by uh, Melvin Douglas, is is Supreme Court judge. Um, he's married to a woman named Selena, played by Myrna Loy. Uh, there's an architect in there. There's a congressman or a senator in there. There's a convy in there. There is. And, there the most successful sweet... one of all. <laughs> yes. And he is Bert Bert Convy plays her like third or fourth cousin removed and he's got the hots for her. So creepy. Yes, it is it is kind of. And so we go from this scene of just these two people kind of walking along the beach, just talking, shooting a breeze, uh, to meeting the family. And there are like fifteen or twenty people. And they're all there and they're all talking about things. And uh, they talk a lot about how Peggy's life is basically to – I she, she skis, correct? Is, yeah, is she's that, like very she's... sporty. And I feel like, yeah, it's like skiing or something is like her career. They're all super successful, but she's like the athletic one really of the mm -hmm. group. They're all athletic, but she's the one that does it professionally. Yes, and it seems like a very sort of um, uh, competitive family. 
and and yeah, she's she's very much uh, she she seems to court death as it were a lot. She likes to live life to the fullest, and you know this because they say this a lot. And there's an interesting conversation. The first, I guess, of sort of the big speeches, the movie you can tell it was based on a play because there's several big monologues. Yes. And the the first one comes from David when they're talking about death and they're sort of talking about um, like images from Vietnam and such and, you know, the horrors of, of the bodies and everything. And David has a, sort of a long speech where he more or less says, you know, that death is is necessary and death can be a good thing uh, to which you get a lot of uh, stunned looks from the family members. Uh, then dad is wheeled in. He's in a wheelchair. He's had a few strokes. He's in a lot of pain, uh, gets a lot of like injections and has a nurse there. And I, as I said, Melvin Douglas, and he just gives David a really weird look like, mm-hmm. are you Monty Markham? No, it's more <laughs> of a, it's, 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 it, we'll get into it later. What, what the look is. And so, uh, they're there for like a three-day weekend. It's the dad's birthday, and and sort of the first forty minutes or so of the movie are just they're just they're hanging out. What we do here is we go. David and Peggy sort of explore a bit of the island, and they go to this sort of a lovely forest area where the kids used to go and they would play gods and goddesses when they were young, and they use trees the way your parents would use a wall to mark off mm-hmm. your height as you were growing, and and so they, uh, they they wander through there and then. Peggy takes David to her favorite spot on the island, which is uh, like a cliff top, where she basically imagines like going, you know, off the cliff and and just uh, all sorts of thoughts of uh, uh, sort of absolute life is in her. But there are also these strange thoughts of, of death, as it were. And you learn that their family has had lots of tragedy. Two brothers, I believe, died in war. The judges... Bro- uh, brother and uh, his wife died in a plane crash. Something like that, uh, yeah. And then they had a five-year-old daughter. Peggy had a five-year-old do- sister. daughter. Sorry, sister, sister, who died of leukemia. Mm. And so everyone's kind of hanging out. And they're playing a lot of sports. That Most of the time, the family are sort of playing sports and hanging out, having fun. And then there's, uh, there's a scene where David is kind of just wandering through the house, checking it all out. And he meets up with Selena. I'm, I'm going to call her Myrna throughout. Myrna's... Uh, <laughs> Myrna's doing a little sort of scrapbooking, putting the, you know, those old style photo albums. Do they still have those, you know, with like the plastic sheet and you would put the photos down on like the sticky bit and then put the plastic over it. She's, she's assembling one of those. They begin to discuss uh, the, her her daughter who died. And David asks, he, he, he basically says, you know, if, if it doesn't hurt too much, could you please just tell me about her and, and sort of where she is in your heart and your mind? And she does.
This is my favorite scene in the movie. Um, you know, you're right. It's very dialogue heavy. And I know we'll talk about that later. But there's so many beautiful moments in the dialogue. And I like the way this scene is handled. First of all, it's Myrna Loy. So whatever. Yes. You know, I'm going to love it no matter what. But like the way she sort of is at peace with losing such a young child is really conveyed in this scene. Yes. And yeah. it's really interesting the, the way... I kind of want to save it till the end how I feel about this movie, but like, oh, yeah. um, but there's just, there's like sadness and hope and throughout mm. the whole film mixed together, yes, which is really interesting. And I think that this scene kind of defines that for me. Uh, after that moment, well, the, like I said, there's a lot of, there's a mix of everyone hanging out and playing sports and, and um, David and Peggy walking along and a lot of talking and they're beginning to sort of fall for one another and Convy ain't having it. He, you know, he's like, that guy's after the Chapman cash. Uh, there's a moment where I believe it's, is it the senator or congressman? Is he a senator? The senator is caught watching TV. You're not supposed to be watching TV. Right. You're supposed, everything's supposed to be turned off and he, his wife comes in and tells him to get away from the TV and he's going to turn it off. And as he's, he's going to turn it off, you hear a story about – and I, 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 might, I didn't write the exact chronology of the way you learn the bits down. But you more or less hear a story where it's, it's um, a nursing home burnt down. It was a horrible fire, but nobody died. Miraculously, everyone got out. But then the, the TV is turned off. Yeah, and Peggy and David continue on their business, doing their thing. And there's David – the judge basically wants to talk to David. He doesn't – there's something about David that's confusing him. But David is very like uh, – he's very – he's sort of got it, – it, he, he makes up some excuses about not really knowing his uh, – being in touch with his parents anymore, that kind of thing. But it's – he just really doesn't seem to want to talk about you know what he's doing there, where he comes from, which makes the judge suspicious. And the judge calls a lawyer friend of his and says, look, the, look up uh, – I want all the information you can find mm -hmm. on David Smith. And the lawyer's like, yeah. <laughs> Do you have have anything else? Fingerprints, uh, so, social security, job, hair color. Yep. David Smith. And and at and during that conversation, you get a moment where the lawyer says, hey, did you hear? Uh, and I forget exactly how he phrases it, but the judge mishears it. And he says something like, no one's died in the past 24 hours. And the judge says, and eh, a few hours, everyone will die or it'll pile yeah. up or something. I think he thinks it's like local. Yes, he thinks it's like a local thing and the judge sort of hangs up and the lawyer is kind of like, no, no, you know, it's like he holds up a headline that says no deaths in the world for the past 24 hours. So as as this uh, this this thing is going on in the island, nobody is dying anywhere. So we're kind of leading up now to this big two of the brothers. I don't remember which two they are. There's so many brothers <laughs> and it really doesn't actually matter. Um, I don't think in the end, but they have a big boat race. And um, they're getting ready to do this race. And meanwhile, of course, the, the big David and Peggy are obviously sort of now in love. And Convy confronts David and kind of like looks like he's going to get in a Convy fight. I'm not, I don't think I've ever seen him get in a fight in a movie like that. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I did see him get in a fight in Help Wanted Mail. I'm pretty sure he might have lost that fight because it was against Gil Gerard. Oh, of course. Yeah. I, yeah. 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 So he um, but he looks like he's going to get in a fight. But then there's sort of a moment near the end where David just gives him a look and and Convy kind of like has a strange look on his face and kind of like backs down. And a beautiful, strange look. It's beautiful. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful, <laughs> two be beautiful guys sort of giving each other the stare down. Do you prefer Convy to Markham? Oh, yeah. I mean, Burke Convy is one of my all time favorite sure. people in the world. But I do love Monty Markham something something fierce of course uh now we get a uh, sort of an important scene uh where the judge is 
getting his meds for the day and he clicks on the TV and he sees that a news bulletin basically saying no one's I forget how long it's been at this point, but nobody's died. No one has died in the world. And in some respects, that's good. If any of you have seen Torchwood Miracle Day where that happens uh, one day, everyone wakes up and no one dies. It's good in some respects, but it's not in others. And they show footage from uh, Vietnam and a reporter basically saying uh, the shooting's still going on, but nobody's dying, which is good in one way. But there are people who are mortally wounded who just want to die who can't. Suffering, yeah. Yes. And so there are people people suffering around the world who need to pass. But for some reason, it seems like death took a vacation. No, that's not the word I'm looking for. I'll, I'll figure it out. Holiday. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so we go to the big scene with the boating thing, and so these two guys are going along, and they're all sort of standing up on a cliff top kind of thing, looking down at him, and the, and the boats are going along. Uh, uh, David's standing behind the judge, and two kids who I hadn't seen before, and I thought they were from somewhere else, but they're actually two of the kids in the family are on like a little boat, and um, they. Uh, they're in their boat and one of the brothers gets knocked out of the boat and the boat makes a beeline directly for the boat with the two kids in it. And I sort of actually thought of the beginning of sleepaway camp for a moment. Because yeah, kids, I did too. I did kids, too. Kids are by the side of the boat and it really, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a better scene than the one in sleepaway camp because, <laughs> because there's no one in this boat and it's just out of control. Whereas in sleepaway camp, it requires two teens to not be paying attention for like 30 seconds and not notice like the overturned boat and all the people in front of them so this is worth-, worth it it's worth it for that girl's freaking out oh yeah definitely definitely um and and it's interesting because as the boat is rushing the kids and there's nothing they can do and 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 the judge is getting really agitated david is just standing behind him going they're going to be all right they're going to be all right and they are all right and that's where we begin to roll towards our climax of the movie the, and the judge says, it's you, isn't it? I've seen you before. Every time I had my stroke, you're death. And that's why no one's dying because you're here. And he says, yes, I took a break. Uh, I rescued <laughs> my daughter, took a little holiday. And now I'm here uh, because I want to find out why you humans cling to life so strongly. And he says, and it, it's it's funny because I, in my mind, it We'll talk about this afterwards, but but he says, I'm here. I, I stopped all everything to talk to you, Judge, because you've seen so much tragedy and you're in pain all day long. I want to know why you live, why you continue to cling to life. And the judge tells him.
this is one of my other favorite monologues. One of the things I love so much about this film is not only do I think it asks provocative questions, but they've got these great uh, golden age actors delivering these like really beautiful pieces of dialogue. And, um, and also it's a little heartbreaking. I don't really know how old Melvin Douglas was when he made this. And I feel like he did the changeling after this. Yes. So he was around for a while, but he really does look very sickly in the film. And it is sometimes hard to look at him. But then when he talks about like why he stays on, you feel like his passion for it. You know what I mean? It's just, it's really it's rich. Yeah, it's really I wonderful. Think. Yeah. And yeah, you learn that uh, Peggy did drown. And the very next day he's going to have to take her to the afterlife everyone will die who's supposed to die and everything will go back into place. And then we sort of roll towards the ending here and I'll stop my breakdown, but it sort of becomes, uh, will the dad, the dad sort of offers himself up in, 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 in Peggy's place. Will David accept that? Will David be able to take Peggy? Will David leave Peggy uh, alive? Will David stay with Peggy? What will love do? What will happen? And we roll towards the ending there with some really lovely uh, dialogue, some really lovely scenes, and I'll, I'll stop it there. We'll ruin it. And, I mean, I don't, I don't know if ruining is the right thing. This is what a, like a two hundred year old play and a remake yeah. of a of a well known film from the thirties. <laughs> so we'll talk about the end because I think the ending is so. I think both these films have really interesting endings. Yes, yes, they do. They really do. Yeah. Yeah, Deadly Love had a more unexpected ending, and we'll talk about that when we get there. This one, you kind of saw where it was going, but there was something really impactful about it. Um, even though you kind of can predict what's going to happen. It was only after I sort of got to the end and the ending happened that I was like, "Okay, yeah." But but as it was going, I was. I was kind of on slightly on the edge of my seat. Like I didn't quite know what was going to happen, but then when it happened, I was like, of course. Yeah. I think it had to end. So let's just spoil it. So I yes. think it had to end with Peggy going off with David Smith, because even though the father wanted to sacrifice himself and I think David really did have the power, even though he said he didn't, because I think he did prevent those kids from yes. death and he meant it. Like it wasn't like he was going to come back in two days and get them. It's like, you can't change the course of what's happened. And it becomes so impactful because uh, Selena, who is Peggy's mom, played by Myrna Loy, kind of lets her go. Yes. And I'm going to cry just talking about this. So at the end of this movie, I bawled my eyes out for like an hour. It was so beautiful. And like I said earlier, it's it's a movie that's filled with sadness and hope at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know how they play, pulled that off because cause Peggy has been dead for two days. Yes. And doesn't know it. And she's got this pretty nice family loosely based on the kennedys which seemed pretty obvious to me yes um i thought you were going to say she had a pretty nice wardrobe she did she had a fantastic wardrobe something i couldn't i wouldn't even dare there, wear there, like some of those that short that short thing that like half top shorts that she wore at the end there that was... so beautiful yeah she's gorgeous mm -hmm. yvette momo is gorgeous and she's a really good actress mm -hmm. and um she's perfectly cast but like um where did I, what was I talking about before we got to our wardrobe? Oh, so they were loose, loosely based on the Kennedys. So, and a family really marked with tragedy, but there was this idea that life was still worth living and that things happen and you kind of, you sad, you never stop missing the person that's gone, but you find ways to move forward. And, and they did it so elegantly. So like in some ways, I feel like maybe it didn't need to be about a rich family, 
you know, but I guess having an island really helps. But like, yeah, <laughs> but but you know, I think it translated really well over different class systems. You know, like I think anybody can relate to like losing somebody, and how the process of grief and how you can sometimes go on. And so I think this film really like provocatively sort of questions whether or not it's okay and is death okay. Mm. And so particularly. Uh, with the little girl that died, the sister, in that she had leukemia. So had there been no death, she would just be in misery and pain for her whole life. So you have to kind of come to terms with that. You know what I mean? Like it was the right thing at the right time. It does occur to me too. I wonder how long David has been death because surely he knew that uh, he knew that uh, she had died, the little girl. That's that's right. But I figure he he corrals so many people. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> he, he forgets. But also, I mean, he came to he came to discover human emotion mm-hmm. because his job is to go from place to place and to pick people up and take them to the other side. This other side that he describes as being really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't fully understand the connection that people have because he's not human. Mm-hmm. So he puts himself in a human form, a really nice looking human <laughs> form. Like he, he, went, he picked, he chose well. And he shows up on the beach. And I, I guess when Peggy came up in line, like if he's in his office and he, you get all these files, you know, yeah. and Peggy shows up in the file and he's, and he, there's something about her that he was attracted to. So mm-hmm. he said, let me see. Maybe it's her dossier. Yeah. You and, know, yeah. She, and it I'm sorry, if it could be, and yeah, if he's there, he does say at one point, really, that he came to speak to the dad, and if he stood by the dad's bedside numerous times, he could That's have even right. had an eye out, like, here's a guy that I know isn't going to die, but he has another tragedy coming, let me go there and see what, uh, why he continues. It's really interesting, too, because think about it, he, um, he comes for the dad, but doesn't take him, so... That's also really interesting because his job is to come take these people. But what is it about the dad that made him go away all those times? So, I mean, it's a really provocative film. It asks a lot of questions. Um, The family is really hopeful despite everything that's happened. There's this real sense of closure with certain kinds of grief that is not, I don't feel as forced. I feel like it's kind of uplifting and doable Mm -hmm. for somebody who's dealing with grief. Um, I don't know how else to word that. And... It's just a really, like, lush, dreamlike film that asks a lot of questions. And somewhere inside of all those questions is this really sweet love story. Yes. About this guy who wants to know what love is, and he finds it. And she finds it so completely, too, that she's willing to, to go. Mm-hmm. And without a lot of fight. Like, at the beginning, she's like, oh, shit, I'm dead. Yeah. That's messed up, guys. Yeah. And she's crying. And she, and then she's like, but I love him so much. I just want to be with him. Yeah. And that's more important to me. And and I think the mom understands it more than the dad does. Yeah. And, and it's just, I don't know, it's just so well played out. And so there's this beautiful shot at the end of the film of them walking along the beach. And they're playing the music. And they're just going away. And, man, I lost it. I uh-huh. lost it. Like, I sat there for a minute, and I thought, that was really good. And then I just exploded in tears. And I couldn't stop crying. And so when I was a little kid, I don't remember having that reaction. But I mm. think what I got out of it was the idea of the suffering mm-hmm. that was happening. I think it, what I remember most from my childhood is the news clips. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and thinking, oh, that's so weird. What if death took a holiday? You know, like, and I didn't really think so much about what was happening to Peggy at the time. And so, and if I did, I didn't understand it. Um, but I have no memory of it. And so watching it now, it was more about uh, 
the relationships within the family, I think, Mm -hmm. rather than the overall arch of the whole world dealing with it. But as a kid, I think I was just really attracted to the idea of what was happening globally, I think. But um, anyway, I loved it. Uh, I want to bring up briefly, it reminded me a little bit of Persephone. Are you familiar with Persephone? Um, No, or I know the name. I, I don't remember that much about her now, but it, what was weird was when I was watching the movie, I was thinking about Persephone, and then I, somewhere along the line, and I wish I had marked it, when I was doing my research, somebody else also called out Persephone. Um, so she was the daughter of Zeus, and somebody called, and I can never say the name right, Demeter, Demeter, who was the queen of the underworld, and she was abducted by Hades. and um, Oh, yes, of course. Oh, yes, and, uh, yeah. And I don't remember the whole story, but but it's the whole the sto- the whole myth is supposed to explain how we have seasons because the mother tore up the lands and she left the earth barren, uh, looking for her daughter, and because she was grief stricken, and um and I think the daughter came out periodically to visit, but she stayed with Hades, and and I you know it's a very loose connection, but I definitely felt like a Greek mythology, um, undertone to the film. And and for whatever reason, and I don't know enough about Persephone to argue it better, but um, but I definitely had that feeling there. And maybe if somebody listens to this is really into classical history, can let me know if I'm right or wrong. But I feel like that there's some influence there. Yeah, I yeah I would. Yeah. Thank you. I think so. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I uh, yeah I'm sorry I forgot why I knew the name Persephone. I blanked on it until you started to explain. I was like, oh, of course, of course. I couldn't remember her name. I had to look it up. I just knew <laughs> I knew the story, but I was like, oh shit, what was it? And then um, I was able to find it. One of the the thing, well, I love I, I love qu- quite a bit of of this movie, uh, and uh, one of the things I really like about it is that it just starts off with one woman on a beach, and then a woman and a man, and they walk for a bit, and suddenly there are like twenty or thirty people, most of whom I didn't really figure out who they were exactly, but they're there to sort of um, create the the family and and the constant yeah. like celebration and the fun they're having, but then once the once the boat race ends. It literally goes from being all these people to basically what four people. It's right. it, it becomes David, Peggy, the judge, and Selena just having conversations about what they now know is happening. And I, I really like the way it sort of yeah starts off so quiet and then gets big and loud and raucous for like a half an hour. Well, not completely loud and raucous, but you know louder. And then it kind of breaks down again into these bits and then you even get you know like the 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 loudest moments in the last half hour are probably guillermo's uh chainsaw which is really loud he's the guy he's their uh their gardener who has to cut down i mean that's uh i I, can we spot the symbolism there he has to cut down her her tree peggy's tree that she was measured on because it's a danger now after the storms of the last year i'm totally gonna cry again Okay, well, you, you need to cry, please do. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the only sort of loud moment in the last half hour. And there's a great moment where Peggy sort of realizes what David might be doing, which is David isn't going to take the dad. David is going to stay with Peggy, which is that's going right. to s- screw everything up. So what she does is she makes a beeline for that cliff and she's going to leap off the cliff. But David grabs her and it's a really kind of scary stunt because it looks like she's going off the cliff and he leaps at her and then the camera cuts overhead and you see there's like a little landing sort yeah. of it, it, it's like there's the cliff there's a little landing and then you drop and like the two of them kind of bounce on the landing and it's really like whoa and she said she did that because she had the feeling that um well i guess some of it is don't take my dad uh, but it's also the feeling of she thought he might not be able to take her so 
she thought if he leapt off the cl- if she left off the cliff when her body broke on the on the ground he'd have to take her there'd be no way That's he could right. not take her yeah he was he was conflicted about it wasn't he because yeah. because he came to he came to really appreciate people and their emotions uh, staying with his family and i think he like before he would just take whoever and i don't think he thought much about it and now he was actually thinking about the repercussions of taking another daughter from a still living mother you know and that kind of stuff and it was making it harder for him to do his job uh, you you mentioned um Myrna Loy's, uh f- final monologue and it's the one where it's it's basically the d- dad is saying um no he's going to take me instead you've got too much to live for peggy you you're in the you're in the mid morning of your life you know and i'm you know pretty much at the end of mine so so he's going to take me and and selena Myrna Loy there just basically has this just lovely speech where she says you know um, I just don't think that's going to happen. You know, he, she says, I accept it. And I wrote it down. My, my favorite line is, um, and I'm not going to deliver it like Myrna Loy. So forgive me. <laughs> You'd have to watch. But she, she says, you know, talking about death, she says to me, he's just a fact like night or clouds or quiet, which I thought was a really lovely line. Yeah. And it's just, and you just see this, this thing where she has really sort of come to the, come to grips with, uh, all this or, around them. And the dad is just, I, I feel I feel like maybe the dad has too, but he doesn't want to lose his daughter, so he's willing sure. to do this. Whereas well, she, she can take the deep breath and go, you know what? It kind of needs to happen. I think I think because the way the family is set up, it was very traditional, and he was a judge who worked a lot. Yes, and she was a mother, mm-hmm. and so she, when she lost her child, probably had more time to deal with it, and to like kind of sit with death and like learn about it and feel it and he probably went to work and threw himself in his work do you know what i mean that's my like yeah. the stereotype of what happened and so we're confronted with it again it's like she has been through it from point a to point z and understands all of the minutiae that happens in there and he probably never really dealt with it you mm-hmm. know and so yeah. it, i think in a way it was scarier for him um, than it was for her. And I'm not saying that she was happy to give her daughter away, but she kind of understood the process yeah. m- much better than the husband did. And that was really interesting, too. And probably very grateful of the fact that they do get another, they did get another day or two with her after yes, after she sure. died. And I, I will say the, the, the one, it's not a drawback, it's only something I noticed the second time I watched it, is that um, I think Myrna Loy and Melvin Douglas are so good that they sort of outshine Yvette and Monty sure. on a few occasions. Because um, uh, Mon- Monty does, most of the time he does sort of a very stoic kind of thing. Um, and it, it works almost all the time, but there are a few moments, specifically when I watched the second time today, at the end of um, Myrna's speech about her, her five-year-old daughter, the, he, the look that David gives her, he doesn't say, I don't think he says a word, he just gives her a look and then leaves, and I realized as I was watching, I thought, I'm not sure what exactly I'm supposed to be f- feeling right there, or if I, I, I maybe I can make my own choice as to what I'm feeling right there. I, I think he's thinking something like, that's not quite the answer I wanted to hear, or something like that. I, I'm not, I'm not, but he, he's almost a little too stoic right there. I felt like, right. it, uh, for a moment there, I thought, like, what if that was someone like Cary Grant or someone like that? Whoa. I feel like I, I would have got it maybe just a little more, but I could be wrong if I watch it a third time. Uh, no, no, that was that's of all the stuff I've read about Monty Markham um, being too stoic. It's not necessarily the words they use, but he that's a criticism he's had throughout his career. Okay, and so when he played the new Perry Mason, 
um, which I thought was a pretty good show. I think it's better than people give it credit for. Um, he was sort of uh, uh, criticized for not having a certain kind of like levity maybe to him mm -hmm. or like a lightness. He's very stoic in general, a lot of his delivery, which is interesting because he does comedy and he's really good at it. Like he played uh, Blanche's gay brother on the Golden Girls. Do you remember that? No, I don't. And he's very good, but there's something he has kind of an aloof quality, which I think works in certain characters. Mm -hmm. um, but I could see where you might, what you said there totally fits into criticism he's gotten in the past. I think he's perfect. Oh, of course. Like, <laughs> he does no wrong. I think he's wonderful. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think I think like uh, like eighty percent of the time he's absolutely fine. There are just a few moments where I, c I couldn't gauge what, and maybe I'm not supposed to. He's death. I don't know what death's thinking. Well, so. he's also like kind of. I'm assuming that a lot of the emotions he feels are like sort of the first time he's felt anything. Oh yeah, true. You know, and so it's interesting because he kind of jokes around a little, and it's like mm. it's it's funny to me because I'm like death jokes around because yeah. he seems so like he doesn't understand people. But he, there are certain things that are very human about him at the same time that kind of confuse me about the character. And I don't think that's Monty Markham's performance. I think yeah. some of the dialogue maybe. But um, but so I could see I could see where like maybe he fell short in a couple of spots, but was also perfectly cast in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah. And I, I do wonder also if if death uh, and, and, and I, I, I could be reaching slightly here, but if there's a thing where like. You know, if he's in the room with the judge, if he's standing there going, this is a very old man who's near the end of his life, you know, and he'll he might be happy to go or let me take him. And if, if he has that feeling, you know, he has that with when he with like a five year old, is he saying, oh, I, I don't want to take her. She's cut down, you know, too mm -hmm. early in life or whether he just strolls into everything and has the same. You know, like, here you go, old guy, here you go. I, there's no distinction. You know, here you go, human male, here you go, human female, let's go. And maybe something like this, this interaction here would like, he, he's finally seeing like, oh, wow, okay. You know, taking the daughter, the younger daughter from these two people, you know, it does really hurt them, you know, and, yes. and this, this man is willing to give up his life, which is almost at the end, but he's holding on. But which he, but which he also made a big plea about originally before he realized that his daughter had died. He yes. was like telling that exact monologue, you know, this is why I live, and and like that must be curious to Monty Markham because he never. Yes. Why do people want to be here? Mm -hmm. And um, and it's just so interesting, like the way they view grief in this film is really interesting and and loss and and the reason why so many of us stay behind. Yeah. After tragedies, it's just it's so beautifully handled. I really need to to read the original play. Yeah, I need. I I feel like I watched the Frederick March movie, but um, when I watched a few minutes of it this morning, I thought I don't think I've ever seen this. Yeah, I'm really mad I didn't have a chance to squeeze that in because I really really want to see it. I, I want to do everything involved with Death Takes Holiday. I want a Death Takes Holiday T-shirt, <laughs> <laughs> a tattoo. You know, like I just want to uh, walk around and tell everybody. Hat. Yeah, I was really taken by this film, and mm -hmm. like I was worried that like I wasn't worried because you know I love almost every TV movie I see, but there's always this idea that when you discover something as a kid and then you see it again as an adult, yeah, you you're like, oh my god, what mm -hmm. was that? And yeah. and I was worried that that might happen a little with this film, but it really didn't. And um, it's layered enough that I could see myself as a kid finding certain things appealing, but then as an adult finding other things appealing. Yeah. 
Um, they did a really good job with it. Just, it's got all kinds of elements in it that can, there's all different things to think about. Even when you have like a five-year-old brain that's not fully formed, doesn't understand death, there's still questions in there that you can, yes. you can ask yourself while you're watching it. You know, it's really interesting. Yeah, I and I do. I, I I'd love to know what people uh, thought of it when it originally aired because it does because it's a ninety minute one, and so it's like seventy three minutes long sure. or so. And for the first, literally a little over, prob probably about like forty five to fifty minutes of it is uh, watching it with commercials. Uh, maybe about fifty minutes of it with commercials is like. Uh, the raucous family and and um, Peggy and David walking along, falling in love, and the confused judge and these newscasts. And then if you're just watching it, the first airing as you're approaching the hour long mark, suddenly it just becomes a series of monologues between characters, mm -hmm. which to me seems rather brave to do. Yeah. I mean, this is what is it? I mean, this is right. Uh, yeah, this is around the time of well, no, the Beverly Hillbillies was off the air. I was trying to think of a good example. You know, you could have switched over to Bonanza was still on or All in the well, Family. I will something. tell you what this ran against, and one of oh, them no. was was Mary Tyler Moore, which is a very smart oh, comedy, but still, it's like a you know very, mm -hmm. it's it's very driven by an ensemble cast and movement, and do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we could talk a little bit about that. I have just one critic response when we get to the background okay. but i think in general it was critically well received mm -hmm. um i feel like the people who have seen it i don't know about its original airing like i think if you go on imdb it's pretty well regarded mm -hmm. by people who have seen it but yeah it's an interesting film um but you know a lot of so i'm going to go back to monty markham again he made sure. this movie and i always reference this film even though it's not my favorite tv movie but i think it's very emblematic of what TV movies were trying to do when they were first created. And that's that um, they were really uh, focused on the domestic space. Um, so here we're seeing like a larger version of that. These people have a really nice house, but it's still like their home. And um, mm -hmm. it's a vacation home, but it's a, it's a place of domesticity. So the uh, astronaut is about a guy. So the first 15 minutes are a conspiracy. It's about a guy played by Money Markham who is on a mission to Mars and something happens and he dies as he gets into the atmosphere of Mars or on return or something. And the company that's created the rocket ship doesn't want anybody to find out that they lost a man because they're worried that the government will pull the funding. So they find a doppelganger also played by Monty Markham and they train him to be just like Monty Markham and they say you're going to come home everything like you landed and you're going to go back home and live with your wife for this certain period of time and this is what your home life is like. The only thing is is that Monty Markham the original was getting ready to go through a divorce with his wife and she was pregnant she loses the child while he's in orbit. Oh. So he comes into this home and he's not her husband. So he's much more caring. He hasn't like divorced her in his mind. He's He thinks he's going to get closer to her. And partway into the movie, so, so it's the first 15 minutes are seriously this global conspiracy, right? That starts with this company creating this uh, fake doppelganger to come in. And then after like 15 or 20 minutes, it gets completely shaved down till it's almost just two people through the rest of the film. Wow. And it almost takes place entirely in the home. They leave the house, I think, once. Mm -hmm. And and there's other people that come in the house periodically and things like that. But it's really about this couple where she's learning to fall in love with this doppelganger. And he's falling in love with her and dealing with these family issues and her losing her child. And it's really emblematic of what TV movies like to do. And so I think that this film, in a way, does the same thing, although it starts small, then gets big, and then goes small again. 
but TV movies were really the really old. Not the not the sixties ones, but I guess we go into the early seventies. You'll notice, and maybe I'll pick a couple as an example, and we can do that specifically to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But they're very small films. Um, something like Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring is about the counterculture movement and the reaction to it, but it really all takes place inside one home. Mm-hmm. with one girl who's come back after living with hippies for like a year and being really disillusioned by that, but also being disillusioned by her life. In disillusioned Syria. by hippies? She's no. totally disillusioned by hippies. Some, and some ten, crazy... years be- 10 years before, she was dis- disillusioned by beatniks. She and was. It, just... Sally Field had had a day. But let me tell you, let me tell you, there's some messed up stuff in that movie that she has to deal with. But like, so, so in a way, That Takes a Holiday is doing something that was sort of common in the TV movie in that era in its own way. So I think the audiences might have been pretty receptive to it if they were familiar with TV movies. And this is a really early entry. This is like 1971. But The Astronaut was 1970. So like, I feel like maybe the audience may have been more receptive to it then than they might be now. Oh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they've been yeah. sort of trained mm-hmm. to see these television films as much more intimate. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I, I'm 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 actually I have it playing here, and uh, uh, Peggy has just tried to jump off the cliff, and they're having their discussion on the sort of the very edge of the cliff. And whenever it cuts to uh, over over Monty Markham's shoulder, uh, Yvette there is like framed by the beautiful like waters behind her, and it's funny. I realized uh, sort of uh, this sort of reminds me a bit too of like a Bergman film, something like say Through a Glass Darkly, sure. which is. A, which is about a family of is four or five just on an island just for a weekend and uh, a daughter begins to go crazy. And, you know, it, it's like a chamber piece sort of in the in the last half hour, um, but with a lot more moving around and Monty Markham and Yvette in these little tiny shorts. Yeah, <laughs> it's also a lot like Sandcastles. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it, the I more you that, talk about it, because that yeah. takes place on a beach, first of all, because they're building right. sandcastles. And the sandcastles yeah. are like a symbol for how things get washed away and then how we rebuild after. Mm-hmm. And it's all about dealing with death. I mean, it does it so well. It goes over the top in a couple of places, but it, it tackles pretty much the same subject in its own way. Um, and it, it's a very small film. There's only really five. There's six characters in it, um, five of whom you spend a lot of time with, two in particular you spend most of your time with. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it all takes place like on a beach. It's it's pretty interesting. Maybe I should have paired those two together. Now that I think about yeah, it, but... we'll do. We we we'll have more Valentine's days. Okay. That's um, a good one too. That one has me though, like balling. Like oh. I just couldn't. I couldn't do it because the, <laughs> I've only seen it once, and it just I destroyed me. It destroyed me. <laughs> so good. Can, can I ask? And the, and then um and, and then I'll I'll stop bringing up. Can I ask things? Um I. Oh, unless I got a couple more. But, but the um, uh, do you think there's a moment where she says, Peggy says to David, I don't know anything about you. Tell me about yourself. And one of the things that I mentioned was Peggy and her brothers and sisters used to play gods and goddesses in the That's forest. Right. And they'd be this Bullfinch. goddess. They'd be, yes. Uh, yes. Yes. And David begins to talk about, well, when I was with um, – uh, what is it like, John the Baptist, and yes. I was Euripides, and I was in the court of Charlemagne, and let me tell you about the 15th century. And I'm wondering, is that for real? Is that like, is that has he I, been around for that long? I or thought is... so. I thought so. I thought he was as old as time, and mm-hmm. that he had. You said that about Monty Markham before. I, I he, didn't. I, I don't think he's as old as time. I think he's timeless, is what I think. Oh, timeless. Like, okay. Yeah, but um, but I think the character is. 
it's always been him. And that's a tough job, man, because <laughs> the population has grown. And so he has a lot of work ahead of him. But like, um, yeah, I got that impression because at the end she asks about where they're going to go. And she says, well, I'd be with you forever. And he's like something to the effect of even past that. Yeah, like longer or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and um, she was like, I'm in. She mm -hmm. says that now. Yeah, yeah. Flash forward twenty years, and maybe it's not so glamorous, but like, yeah. <laughs> but like, um, but he he was he's eternity, he's forever, mm -hmm. and 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 he's our entire past. He is he is death, and he always has been and always will be. And so, yeah, I got the impression when he said that that he he that was him. I wonder. I, I would love to think that if there were a sequel like Death Gets Back to Work or something like that, <laughs> uh, that that she would maybe join him on occasion and sort of um, bring some more humanity to moments of, of tragedy. What that, a great sitcom. That possibly, <laughs> <laughs> I could hear the laugh track going and going, but, but just something like, we're like, may, maybe he, you know, he would, um, you know, like, like something like the death of a child or, or something like delay their moment uh, well, for just a few moments. So like, say like, like mom and dad are on the way. No, she has to go now. Give give her five minutes, you know. So she, you know, something like that. Maybe not. Now we're making up the sequels to Death Takes a Holiday, right. but but, uh, but but I felt like I felt like when is she even going to see him? Because like I don't understand how their eternity works because it's something different, it's something spiritual, yeah. and it's not them as people. But like I had a hard time envisioning what life would be like for her life using that term because I don't have another word for it. Um, what it would be like to be the lover of somebody yeah. whose job is to go around every day around the world and mm. and bring people to the other side. I mean that it doesn't sound like there's a lot of room for for me time, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like I can't I don't fully understand what but it might mean that their souls merge into one. Uh-huh. I, I was and they travel together. Yeah, I, w I was thinking either something like that. Uh, actually, I just had the thought, um, and actually, this is a, this is a book, Hogfather by Terry Pratchett. I was going to say there must be a point when death passes, like Santa Claus. He's like, "You son of a bitch! You only have to do this one night out of the year." Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. arguing uh, over a beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I, I see either they they would in in this place they would go to. Yeah, they would either sort of. Um, it would either be like they wouldn't merge into one person, or because they're both sort of in eternity. Uh, she just wouldn't notice when he wasn't there. Yeah. S sort of like like he, he, he would be able to, he's been doing the song, he'd be able to do what he needed to do and she would not, you know, like he had a time machine or something and he would just keep leaving and coming right back, uh, you know, a second after he left kind of thing. And yeah, that's that's maybe, yeah. And, and, it, and, it's provocative. And, and possibly she'll get to see her little sister again and, and mm. all her family members too, so there may be, may be time for that. I'm not sure. It, it isn't specific. There, it does say there is an afterlife, a, another side, but it doesn't say if it's like heaven-like or, or what exactly it is, which is cool because then you can, you know, you can just imagine like the last thing you see before you die is Monty Markham with his shirt off. Hey. There you go. Take me now. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I'm ready to go, guys. <laughs> yeah, I know. Pretty interesting. He didn't look like death at all, did he? He was wearing white, too, which is interesting. That must have been a very specific choice. Yeah. he had on white pants. And, uh, yeah, I never thought of that before because we always picture death as, like, in the cloak and black. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, Ingmar kinda... Bergman again. Yeah, the seventh Yeah, he went, he went full opposite of that. 
Mm-hmm. He studied people tan. really well. Yeah, he studied Very tan. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he looked good. He looked he good, looked guys. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a it's a really beautiful film, and, the, and in a way, like they fall in love with each other, but you don't really necessarily see them fall in love. Like it just sort of happens with all this other stuff happening on the island. Like they have these conversations, but it's not like a typical romance movie yeah. at all, where you kind of see the process of it. They just sort of fall in love, and. Um, I like that too. I like that it just sort of is almost like a byproduct of everything else. Yeah, it's almost like you you don't you you don't always need to see those those moments. You can sort mm-hmm. of see the 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 conversations they have on the edge where they learn about one another and kind of just hang out. You don't need to you don't need to get those moments that that we I think we pretty much know are happened. We we don't yes. we don't we don't always need to see them. So yeah, it's just it's really really well done. I'm really glad you like this. I kind of wondered what the reaction to it would be because it is so dialogue driven and mm-hmm. um it's, it's kind of it's not a slow film but it's it's different you know it's 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 good it's good dialogue and so i, I will listen to good actors deliver good dialogue all day long so yeah. so so i'm i'm in so yes thumbs up from me death takes a holiday boom yay yeah big thumbs up for me i really enjoyed revisiting this i'm sad Burke convy didn't have much to do with it yeah. i always forget he's in this but that's probably why because he's only in like three scenes but yeah um the cast is really good although i do think and you can tell me if you're wrong if i'm wrong i'm sorry oh. or you're wrong uh, but don't you think this film needed frank converse oh my gosh just as what yeah perfect he could just one of the other brothers yes you know you only see them and why wasn't he in it? I think one of the brothers looked enough like Frank Converse that it made me think of him. You know what I mean? Um, and I don't know if you recognize there, but Ken um, Kerchival, not Ken Kerchival, Cliff Barnes and Pamela's mom is in this film, Priscilla Pointer, probably best oh. known as playing Carrie's mom and Carrie, not Carrie's mom. Oh, my God. I'm so off my game tonight. Amy <laughs> Irving's mom and Carrie. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And I think she's Amy I'm Irving's poor. real life mom, isn't she? Uh. I don't know that one. I'm going to look it up right now because I feel like that's a piece of trivia I should have written down and I didn't. I thought, wasn't there a piece of trivia that Melvin Douglas's role was originally going to be played by Claude Akins? Oh my God, no. Is that right? No. no okay, I'm going to try to fix it. Although I would like that. I, I was just thinking of moving on with Claude Akins and Frank Conner. <laughs> oh my God, a reunion before they did the series. Before they actually amazing. did the series. <laughs> um, yeah, her, her daughter is Amy Irving. Oh, so. wow. Pretty cool. Um, I really yeah. like it. Priscilla Pointer. She's been in a ton of stuff. She's also in a Nightmare on Elm Street three, right? She's the doctor. Yes, she's prescribing the, the hypnosil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she's a really, really great actress. Um, and it, she has a very small part in this, uh, which surprised me. So should I just go into some background since I'm already talking? Yeah. About I, may I just say one more thing? I've sure. got the I've got the movie playing. Um, Melvin Douglas has just delivered his speech. Um, and and the the and the the, the version I'm watching is just a complete clean screen except suddenly right underneath monty markham the word love just appeared i don't know if there's a network that's called the love network or what I think that it is. was um part of encore maybe okay because it just lit- literally monty markham's face came on and it just says love underneath it i thought huh this is this is the this is the copy amanda prepped I, for me so i feel all- that too <laughs> was he was he in um ghost story melvin douglas yeah, I think so. Yeah, wasn't he? It's yeah. him, Fairbanks Jr., Bing Crosby, and yeah, uh, and, yeah, and, sure, and John yeah. Hausman. John Hausman, and Hausman. he was in the Changeling, right? So that's pretty, yes. pretty interesting. Sort of end of his career uh, filmmaking. There, he was doing and a lot it, of kind of supernatural stuff. And if I say Ghost Story, the first time I ever saw Ghost Story on HBO in like 1982, when I was like nine or ten, 
I couldn't get past the opening scene. I was so scared. The opening scene of the guys in the blizzard telling the stories. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, could, I got five minutes into the movie and I said, nope, turn it off. And I turned it off. Well, I get to I get to do what Amanda admits. Oh, boy. Yeah, so um, I love that movie. I've seen it like 30 times. And the first time I saw it, I didn't really care for it. It took me a couple of viewings to really understand how good it was. Um, it's very different from the book, so I've never been able to read the book. But I used to know Craig Wasson a little when I lived in L.A., just a little. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, he stars in that movie. Mm-hmm. And there's that scene, I don't know how well you remember the film, but there's a scene, you know, the old house that he's staying in has that elevator? Yes. And he comes down, and um, I might have actually plucked this from Fangoria and he didn't tell me, but I know we did talk about this movie. Um, he, uh, they told him that the guy that's, in, there's this homeless guy that's in the movie with a dog, I think, and he, and he shows up in the house. And Craig Wasson has this reaction to him that's like really visceral. And he was told that they were going to put like a green eye thing over it, like a like a really early computer effect uh-huh. to make his eyes like glow. And they didn't. And so when Craig Wasson saw the movie, he was like, I totally overreacted about that guy <laughs> being in my house. Um, I wouldn't have done it that way if they had told me something else. So, um, but it's a really, really good film. Um, again, yeah. Yeah, it's been years since I've seen it, but uh, but that's... That's the story. That's the one story I can pluck out of it that I remember. Um, and I actually have a friend who had dinner with Alice Cridge once. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, he couldn't talk to her. He was so in love with her from Ghost Story. <laughs> that, she's terrifying in that, but she's so beautiful. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he was like, he's, I think he sat at the table and just stared at her for like an hour. <laughs> and she was like, hey, what's up? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Hi. <laughs> she's awesome. I wish that was a TV movie. I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. Now. Okay, so Death Takes a Holiday originally aired on October 23rd, 1971, which makes it a really interesting sort of Halloween programming Yeah. Um, for that year. It aired on ABC. It was part of the ABC Movie of the Week um, programming. It ran against on NBC The Good Life, which I think is that TV show, and this has come up before, um, with Donna yeah. Mills and Larry Hagman. Oh, yes, That's I like believe a, so, yeah. Yeah, it's a sitcom, and I'm dying to see it. Um, and then there was another... I, they aired a movie after that called Colossus, the Forbin Project, which is a theatrical. Uh-huh. And on CBS was Funny Face, the Dick, which I think is the Sandy Duncan show. I think we've talked about it before. Yes. Dick Van Dyke show and the Mary Tyler Moore show. So there's a lot of shows yeah. there. Um, as we said earlier, this was first a play, then a 1934 film. Um, the telefilm was adapted by Rita Lakin, um, who was very excited about taking on the project. She said, quote, at last, something intelligent to adapt, end quote. Um, she wrote a really good book. Um, that I set aside so I don't have the title. Hold on a second. Um, it is called The Only Woman in the Room, Episodes in My Life and Career as a Television Writer. She was one of the first women to work pretty regularly in television as a writer, and her story is really fascinating. Um, and we've already talked about her a little bit because she uh, wrote Women in Chains, that woman oh, yeah. in prison movie. Yeah, mm-hmm, so she did mm-hmm. that. And she wrote a lot of TV movies. I think she wrote for a lot of episodic shows as well. Um, and she kind of fell into writing, which is really interesting. People should pick up that book because her story is really cool. Um, so Lakin said she brought her kids to the set for a day. Um, and it was the scene where Douglas tells his daughter that she's dead. Um, they were in the middle of that scene shooting it. Uh, and it was a real heavy emotion. And, you know, everybody was really into it. And a tour guide accidentally walked in on them shooting thinking that it was still part of the tour of Uh whatever studio they shot it at and i think it must have been universal but i'm not positive of that and he ruined the take douglas actually stormed out and he went back to new york wow and they had to come and get him and apparently he was really difficult to bring back he was furious so 
what they ended up doing was because they had that set in a couple of different scenes they uh said somebody get Yvette Momo out here we're gonna just we need her right now and she came out and her hair was still in curlers and she just went and um very professional and um Rita Lakin said that she brought her son on the set and he fell in love with her instantly like she walked in and he was like oh my god mom this is the best day of my life so um uh, Rita enjoyed the good reviews that she got uh Kevin Thomas of the LA Times said that the film was cinematic and a rare and eloquent uh treat it ranked number 67 out of 167 TV movies. Um, it scored an 18.5 slash 32 rating, which means 18.5 million homes had it tuned in the night it originally aired, which represents 32% of the television viewing audience, which is really good, I think. Um, other telephones with the word death or a variation of uh, in the title uh, release that season, the 71-72 season, include The Death of Innocence, which I haven't seen and I'm not sure I know much about it. The Death of Me Yet, which stars Doug McClure, which is pretty good, sort of a Red Scare kind of film. The Deadly Hunt, I'm not familiar with. Dead Men Tell No Tales, which I think is a Christopher George pilot movie. And The Deadly Dream, which was a rerun of a movie with, I think, Lloyd Bridges and maybe Janet Leigh, um, which I haven't seen yet. The film was directed by Robert Butler, who has uh, basically directed mostly episodic television, but between 76 and 78, he directed six telefilms, including the biopic on James Dean uh, and In the Glitter Palace, which I think might be the first TV movie to feature a prominent lesbian character. Um, I want to look him up real quick because I feel like that James Dean movie might have starred the star of our second film, Stephen McCaddy. Oh, and I just want to check on that real quick. So give yeah, me sure. a minute to pull this up. IMDb oh, sure. is less intuitive than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, their new uh, interface and I hate it it takes me forever to find anything um, yeah Stephen McCaddy played James Dean oh wow crazy That's okay true. great uh, and In the Glitter Palace is actually a really interesting film I just saw it recently it stars Chad Everett and um, it's about I think a woman who gets accused of murder and she is an openly gay woman but she's I can't remember the whole story now I think maybe she's keeping her lover a secret because she's in the closet it's a pretty interesting film it was the first of its kind um, pretty groundbreaking at the time. And also Maureen Reagan, who plays one of the, I think she's the uh, an in-law, like a sister-in-law to Peggy. She was uh, Ronald Reagan's daughter, um, a daughter that she had with Jane Wyman. And that makes her the second Reagan daughter we featured on our show because you'll remember Patty Davis was in um, the male stripper movie with Gregory oh, Harrison. Oh, sure, for yeah. La for Ladies, Ladies Only. only. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so we've actually covered, uh, we've covered the Reagans pretty pretty clearly here if anybody's interested and i think that's all i have on that film nice yay so, yay death takes a holiday we love you yay thank you so much death takes a holiday <laughs> woman with one big Ever hunted. See those punctures? What are you hiding, Rebecca? Too deep to be human. More than you want to know. A tale of seduction where hunger burns <sighs> eternal. A time of danger when love turns deadly. Do you believe in vampires? Susan Day, Stephen McCaddy, Deadly Love. A Lifetime original movie premiering next month only on Lifetime. Um, would you like to begin some deadly love? Yes. This one, 
uh, begins with Susan Day, and she's yeah. hanging out. She, yeah, she's hanging out around a, a sculpture, like a sculpture of like two people sort of intertwined, and she's taking photos of it. And she's flashing back to when she was, yeah, years ago when she was studying. I, I. I was going to say she's studying photography, but I don't think she's studying photography, whatever it is she's doing. Yeah, because it's like it's like before photography, isn't it? Yeah, yes. The, it definitely could be, yeah. I'm not – well, I think the music they're playing in it is sort of like a jazzy kind of thing, which mm-hmm. made me think it was maybe like the 20s or something like that. Or, oh, not... yeah. She seemed to go – I don't know. I, I mean, I'd have to watch the beginning again, but it felt like they were like not super far back, but they were mm-hmm. going back. Because she has all these different hairstyles. Yeah. Like it's a montage of her – yeah, years. meeting this guy and they fall in love and he's a vampire and he makes her into a vampire and then he commits suicide by exposing himself to the a sun jerk. one day. And she yells, Antoine! Because that was his name. And so so she's yeah feeling this great sadness. And she's a photographer. That's what she does for a living. And she she's a vampire photographer. Uh, what, <laughs> what city are they in? Are they in L.A.? Oh, San Francisco, I think. San Francisco. Okay. Um, yeah, she's a vampire photographer who has an assistant named Elliot, who is uh, who's kind of a fascinating character. Yeah. And uh, she goes out to uh, she goes well. The t- most of the time we see her doing her photography, she's going to a place called the Paparazzi. Which yep. is some sort of bar that yuppies hang out in. Mainly, it's about white people dancing, and, <laughs> and, and you, she, I think you can hear their footsteps. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's it's one of those things where it's like it's all white people, and then they throw in like one Asian guy in the back, and you're like, oh okay, I got it. So it's all imagine you're a mid '90s sort of. Are they still yuppies in the mid '90s? Whatever they are, sort of dancing, and she kind of picks one guy. To, to focus on and take some pictures of him. And then they kind of go out for a stroll. And he um, he says, come on back to my hotel. And she says, I don't know. And then she gets a little rough with him. And uh, so then she gets a little rough back and then ends up biting his neck and killing him and stabbing him a lot with knives and throwing his body in a dumpster. Boom. That's her He MO. had it coming. He did. He was a jackass. He was like, I have here, um, uh, he's, yeah, yuppie patent attorney rapist. I don't well... know that he was a patent attorney. I, but I like, just, um, like I who goes in. to a bar like the paparazzi, which is a super hip club, and then reads a newspaper? Like, like who does yes. that? Who does that? Yeah. And I, I, I admit he was a really good looking guy, I, I, but that's such a turnoff right there. Yeah, it. And and I, th- I think that's probably why she was taking pictures of him, sort of like she couldn't believe that. And then she was like, "Well, I guess I can have dinner." And so she, she did her thing, and we learn, <laughs> we learn the next. Uh, the next morning, do we meet? Oh, yeah, we, we do meet Elliot there. Um, and Elliot, like I said, is, is very much her assistant who sort of makes sure everything's okay. She says at one point, you know, now you're like the more or less like you're the personal assistant to a vampire. And he says, I'm happy with my choice. But we cut to the next morning and we see, and I forget her name, um, Sean's uh, partner. Uh, the, oh, the sassy, Pool. All I think she just goes by her last name, Pool. Pool, okay, and they um, pool and uh, arrives at uh, pool. Pool is at the the murder scene. Three three murders like this in six months with knives, knife killings. Um, and this guy shows up. Mr. McCaddy shows up playing Sean and uh, their partners. And they mention donuts. And they they begin to That's investigate right. investigate mm-hmm. what's going on. And um, you meet uh, uh, somewhere in here. You meet Saul, Sal, their boss, who's very much like uh, I don't care if you got to do this, this or that to get the killer. We got to get the killer right now because the mayor's doing this and blah blah blah. You know that kind of character. And yet sometimes when you see him pass them by after he's like balled them out in the previous scene, he'll walk by and go, Hey guys, 
So, so I, I don't think it's, it's I, uh, you know, it's I, a game. It's a show. Yeah, exactly. So they begin, they're investigating this, this thing. And you learn that Sean just got out of, I believe he, was he dumped? Is that the feeling I'm getting? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, out of a, of a relationship. And so he hasn't been bringing in the donuts like he normally does. <laughs> That's not a metaphor, guys. No. And they've, they've been they've been doing this for about, uh, uh, it's about three weeks or so later when um, he spots in the in the paper, uh, Sean spots in the paper, a um, thing for an exhibition that um, uh, Rebecca, our, our vampire, did I say her name was Rebecca or did I call her, what, what did I call her, just the vampire? I forget Maybe. now. Maybe, I can't remember. But her um, name's Rebecca. Her name's Rebecca. She's having a, a, a photo a, a exhibition and one of the photos that's sort of like uh, that he sees in the paper or something is that guy. So he says, I'm going to go to the place and he goes to the place and it's a lot of the photos and she kind of, Rebecca kind of takes a liking to them. They have a conversation. <laughs> so you like them? You don't? Huh. You're the photographer. Yes. No, thank you. Rebecca Barnes. Sure. O'Connor. Well, thank you for coming to the show. Well, uh, actually, I'm, uh, I'm very happy to meet you. Because uh, I've wanted to talk to you. What about? Uh, this shot. Fellow with the newspaper. Do you remember him? Sure. Shot him at the bar over there. The proximity of heartache to hope appealed to me. Yeah, that last line that she says, when um, I'm going to paraphrase it, is something to the effect of, it was like a mix of despair and happiness or hope. Mm-hmm. Like with the photo she took of him. But no, it's just jerk stuff. Yes. It's just, it's just a guy yeah. reading a paper at a really hot nightclub. Like, that's yeah. jerky. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah, he, he likes the photos and he kind of likes her. What's not to like? And she kind of likes him. And uh, she takes a picture of him when he's leaving. Not the most flattering of pictures. She, she's sort of one of those photographers who, and I guess this is probably the style she's doing. She has one of those those cameras that you look down into rather than, you know, oh, yeah. sort of. you look. But, but half the time she's not looking. She's just pointing the camera and hitting the buttons. So, and I guess that's sort of the style is it's kind of this off center sort of thing. She's good though. Like the, whoever still, yeah. did the photos that she shows at the club, like the photo of the guy reading the paper is actually really good. Um, and it's kind of, and if there was a guy reading a newspaper in a nightclub, that would be kind of interesting to look at in a photo, but like, mm. um, but not talk to or anything. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I think that they did a really good job. Like, uh, what's the word I want to use? Like, making her seem like she knew what she was doing yes. like you know what yeah. i mean whoever took the photos did a really good job yeah because she does mention that she really wants to take pictures of sean and sean's is not really into it he thinks he looks like a cop in all his pictures and he does so he does he does look like a cop <laughs> yeah and eventually they sort of uh, the, the investigation with pool and and sean continues and they're not really getting any any sort of sort of further along and but however Rebecca and Sean, their relationship is beginning to slowly move along. And she's she's very enigmatic. If you thought death was in it, well, he was pretty enigmatic. But she's pretty enigmatic, too. And he's he's kind of, he's really into her, and she's really into him. And Elliot does a lot of... Um, side-eye. Side-eye kind of thing. They he's go the best, on. by the way. Elliot, yeah, I'm awesome. team Elliot the whole way. <laughs> and they, they, go out, they go out more or less on a date. And as they're walking home, they're sort of chatting. And they're, I believe that's where they first kiss... And it's all very That's romantic right. 
until the mugger shows up and gives Sean a wallop on the head, knocks him out. And 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 she just Rebecca just gives the mugger look like you shouldn't have done that. And she lifts him up, throws him to the <laughs> ground. Right. Also. And then and then she picks Sean up and gets him into a cab and takes him to a hospital. Yeah. The cab driver's like, let me help you. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Let me help you with that. Oh, he says, he says, let me help you with that. <laughs> OK. Um, and then there's a there's a great scene where she returns home and side eye Elliot as a chat. <laughs> I couldn't just leave him there, Elliot. And if you had been out at dawn? I wasn't. Rebecca, you risked your life for a man you've just met. Maybe because I know he'd risk his life for me. You know nothing about him. He wouldn't leave me, Elliot. I know that. What a strange life you live. Taking care of a vampire. Not strange. Extraordinary. When I began researching vampires, I never dreamed they existed. And then I found you. And my life changed. I am a scientist after all. No one is going to believe you. What matters is the truth. We all make choices, Rebecca. I'm happy with mine. I'm happy with yours, too. Yeah, like you said earlier, Elliot's a really compelling character because he's he's not a vampire, and but he's her assistant, and he's given up whatever his life was before he met her because he's a scientist, yeah. as he says here, to study vampirism, and I don't know what he's going to do with it, but they've formed a really interesting bond because he does say you know, I made this choice and I'm happy with it. And she says, I'm happy too. And she kisses him on the cheek. Yeah. And he gets and, a big smile on his face. Like, well, what's so great about that scene is, is that uh, Susan Day's delivery is very removed. Mm-hmm. And, but there's so much heart there too. Yeah. Like when she's talking to Elliot, you really feel that she loves Elliot. Mm-hmm. And, and yet at the same time, her delivery, if you're just listening to it, like on a, your iPod, you know, you would think something different. And so it's she the actress does a really good job um, conveying several different types of emotions without really betraying the exterior of the character, if that makes sense. Um, It's a I would say I would say maybe I've had a little too much to drink, but I would say (laughs) I think it's a fairly brilliant performance. I think Susan Day's really controlled. Oh, yeah. And but at the same time, really open with her heart in the performance. It's magnificent. I was really blown away by it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't fully expect that sort of thing from Susan Day, so it was really nice to see. I, um, I, L.A. I mean, Law. Oh well, yeah, I didn't watch much L.A. Law. I'm sorry. I, 
I apologize. I guess L.A. Law then is is yeah. where she was like. Or I'm that. just saying that she she was uh, she kind of. We were talking the other day, my running partner and I, about how she kind of got overshadowed by some of the other cast members of the Partridge Family, and I mentioned mm. that she kind of came into her own in L.A. Law. Mm-hmm. And uh, my running partner said, "Oh, I forgot she was on L.A. Law." Oh. But I think oh. it was there, and she did a sitcom with Jay Thomas that I can never remember the name of. That was really good too. And so, um, it, it took her some time, but she pursued acting. And I think she really came into her own like about a decade after the Partridge family went away, okay. or maybe two decades actually. Okay. Yeah, she's she's wonderful in this, and yeah, the the obviously the investigation continues, and and Poole is starting to notice like, hey, uh, you're hanging out with that photographer a lot, and he's he's just bringing her lots of donuts to keep. To, you know, <laughs> but this keep... is. This is also really interesting because I thought Poole was going to turn out to be sort of a love triangle person. Mm-hmm. I th- I thought that uh, Sean and Rebecca and Poole were going to be fighting for Sean, you know, like this, uh-huh. figure out who's going to end up with who. But she really just stays his partner, and I kind of yeah. appreciated that. Yeah, so did, so did I, yeah, yeah. He goes, uh, Sean goes over to Rebecca's place, and she basically says, I'm like, I'm going to shoot you. And then she takes a bunch of pictures of him, and it's it's wonderfully awkward. And then he takes some pictures of her, and then they begin to smooch him. And this is what I refer to as sexy ex- exposition, because the sexy exposition involves when people are delivering the important info as they're smooching and taking each other's clothes off. And that's what happens here, because several things she says, um, including at one oh. point... Yeah. As, as as he's as he's kind of kissing her, you know, and he's he's kind of you know he's he, his his front to her back, and you know her tops coming off, you know, it's all very tasteful, um, mostly very tasteful. Um, oh yeah, it's great. Uh, and and she's saying something like, "Oh, I lived in so many places, and Denver, and Dallas, and Poughkeepsie, and New, New York, and, New, New and, and then she she pauses and says, "New Orleans." Yeah, the tip off. And then she kind of basically when that's it's starting to get really you know, exciting for everyone in the room, she kind of stops it and says, I got to, I got to turn in. And then it immediately cuts to him, uh, in the gym, whacking uh, off pounded the, crap, <laughs> the same thing. It's the same thing. Pounded the crap out of a punching bag. Yeah. And pool is like, what happened to you last? Night? I, you know, I didn't put those two together. That's so funny. I didn't even think about that. And, and what, what we start to get here is these little bits where, um, it's like, she has a certain perfume that she wears. Right. She mentions she, all those cities and port. she drinks port. She drinks the port, and and you get you get these moments where um uh uh there's uh I think it's actually like a scene or two after the the sexy exposition where she says well, no where they're going through files where they discover that the FBI have been tracing a killer who is very similar to their killer, mm-hmm. and that killer was in Denver and Dallas and Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie and New York <laughs> and New Orleans, all the glamorous places, Poughkeepsie, yes. <laughs> and you Sarah Newark, Cute. they're all great. <laughs> Yonkers, there is all the great places, um, and and you you see Sean gets a bit of a look on his face, and you can't quite, I couldn't quite peg it at that moment if he's like, holy crap, but he gets a bit of a look on his face, like, huh. Where have I heard that before? Yeah, I'm sure... I feel like I feel like it's coming together for him right there. That's the moment I was like, "Oh God, he's figuring it out." And so uh, you get uh, a scene in here where she uh, she kills another guy, but this time she's caught. An off-duty cop sees her oh, sh- yeah. shoulder, but uh, but but her arm heals. And then oh, and this is another one of those things. That night she goes to his ha- to Sean's place, and they 
a little bit of rumpy pumpy, if you will, occurs. They do, and I was really shocked by this scene because it's much more than what you would see on. It's very there's no nudity. Yeah. Um, it's mostly alluded to, but there's some bumping and grinding, and I was like, what? I'm yeah. not I'm not used to that on because I've not seen that on network TV, and that's normally what I watch. Yeah. And it was really well done. Like I wouldn't say it was erotic because it wasn't, but it was pretty sexy for what it was. Mm-hmm. And they, they do that, and they've had a great time. They talk about how much they had a great fun, time. fun they had. They had a really great time. And he does mention, oh, I never noticed that scar on your shoulder. And I forget her response. But that's just another one of those things. Well, there's a scene right at the end where she's leaving, and I'm not sure if that's where it comes up, but she mounts him. Oh, yes. Remember, like, as she's leaving, she's yeah. like, well, I have to go, and they're having a conversation. And then she, like, mounts him while he's laying in bed. I was like, whoa. And like, she's so commanding the character. Like, she's like, this is what I want to do right now. I want to mount you. And so like, she does. And I was like, whoa, I loved it. I loved it. And then, I mean, she, she, it's, and it's, it's sort of the the great thing about, I I love is that there is the, um, I I, I think it's in the previous scene, the sexy exposition scene. I forget where she asks if he's ever killed anyone. That's right. And he says, like, I did once, but it was in self-defense. You know, does that turn you off? And she goes, no, the opposite. And you're like, whoa, bow, bow, hey. Bow, bow, bow. Yeah. This, and, and I, just, I, mean, I, I mean, the paint was coming off the walls, guys. It was. It was. I mean, I, I could just, I in my mind, I was just thinking I would just be shaking standing talking to her like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I guess I, I, I won't go. I won't go t- uh, too many more scene by scenes here. But we get uh, moments like uh, there's some perfume on one of the uh, the victims. And they link it to the perfume that she wears, which mm, is a perfume that right. hasn't been made in a hundred years. Aren't you going to talk about the coroner, played by Robert S. Woods from One Life to Live? I was just going to mention the coroner right here because the coroner, um, if we, we could talk about it more, um, I was just going to say he brings up at first. Uh, Sean is trying to allude to the fact that it might be something other than knives, uh, and he the coroner does find like fang marks, and they, That's st- right. they start talking about that. He's so smart. He's so smart. And then they discover that there's a saliva that is was excreted by whatever this was. It oh. sort of he heals. Yeah, he has a pro. He noticed a protein that he'd yeah. never seen before in his entire life. I remember him talking about that yeah. because he's so smart. And and Sean says Sean says to Mister Smarty Pants, uh, "Would mm-hmm. it heal a, a gunshot wound?" And he says, "Yeah, in, in minutes." And so he's like, oh, boy. And you get and it's it's one of those things where the the police investigation is slowly drawing closer to her. The two of them are falling more and more in love. I mean, they say they're in love. I mean, they're they're having a really great time with one another. Um, and you, you can sort of see it's that thing where he's more and more realizing what she is. But I mean, that's one of those things you, you don't want to bring it up unless you have absolute proof. You don't want to go up to your love and say, are you a vampire that murders people? You don't want to say that unless you got no. enough proof. So you want them to say it to you, uh, I think. And How many times have I been in that situation? I would say seven or eight. but I Yeah, I it's like, I want you to tell me. <laughs> Please. I know, I know, and I know you know I know, we, but I need you to tell me. So it 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 um, it builds, and like a mayor's aide or something is killed. So Sal is getting really pissed, and then they have a strange conversation when they're in the, the packed elevator, and he keeps saying stuff like, "Do we have any information on this killer?" And then uh, everyone in the elevator looks at them, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh." And um, <laughs> see, uh, yeah, and it, it sort of builds to a big sequence where he he basically goes to her and wants her to say, "I'm a vampire." 
so they can discuss it. And <laughs> and that's, that's sort of in the end, and we could talk about in the end, that's sort of the feeling that you get. When he's in there, he's not saying like, you're the vampire, cuff her, you know, and he pops the cuffs on her and takes her away or something like that. I think he no. he, he loves her and he, he, he wants to, um, he, you know, this is something he you got to know. be with her. He's he's super conflicted because I think he's a moral person. Yes, and so she and and she she is like on the verge of telling him, but it doesn't quite happen. And then um, I, I'll sort of wrap it up here. But we move towards the ending where a big clue comes in on the cops end, and they kind of know who did it. And she Rebecca kind of knows that she wants to tell Sean, but she can't. And Elliot is kind of the voice of like. If, if you go through with this, you're just going to have to leave again. And I'll stop at the point where she gets dressed up real nice and goes off into some sort of strange e- evening party. I don't know what the heck it is. And she commits a murder that is, like, blatant. And um, and I'll, I'll sort of leave it there because that's sort of— Oh, is that the one with the cowboy hat floating? Yes, that, the cowboy hat floating and then the cowboy floating. And, so, and it's sort of—and I'll stop there because she's sort of hastening, I think— her having to leave but i'll stop it there and it kind of builds and builds and they're in love and are the cops going to get him is he going to find out about is she going to reveal herself to him is he going to arrest her are they in love what's going on what's happening i'll stop there amanda this movie's awesome um i loved it i was really surprised that i hadn't seen it by now and because it's interesting because i know more than one person has recommended it to me over the years and i've and i've looked it up and i've thought about it and then i just forget there's so many movies to see and so um, this was a really nice uh, excuse to sit down and watch it, and I couldn't believe how much I liked it. It's so good. It's Susan Day is like a revelation in it. Like she's so amazing in it, and she should be starring in movies all the time. And I'm surprised that she's not. And um, she's super sexy in it. I think the sex scenes are sexy without being explicit, and it fits really well into that sort of erotic thriller sort of thing that was happening at the same time on the big screen and direct to video without going there and also making it pretty female friendly at the same time. They did a really good job with it. I just thought the whole story was good and I thought it ended very unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to spoil it, but like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Elliot comes to her and he's like, Elliot, why am I calling him Elliot? That's not Elliot. Sean comes to her and he's like, mm-hmm. I want to be with you. I'm ready. I've killed before, you know, whatever I'm prepared. And, and she's like, I can't mm-hmm. do it. I can't do this to you because the life she's led has been so lonely and that she would never do that to somebody yeah. she really loved, unlike her boyfriend beforehand. And so she basically kind of sacrifices her own happiness so that he can live a full normal life and not have to go on an eternity of something happened to her alone. And, and she leaves and that's it. He lets her go. And yeah, I was like yeah. surprised by that. Cause I was expecting her to either die or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and when it didn't happen, it was sort of like, in a way, both parties won. Mm-hmm. She didn't win because she has to go through life being really lonely, but she got to keep her freedom. And and she got to go on. And his life, he won because eternity sounds really cool when you've got a really yeah. good girlfriend, but it doesn't always work that way because eternity, <laughs> eternity is a long time. And so he needed to just live his life as a person and the full scope of the mm-hmm. life, however long that was to be, in his own natural you know, timeline, the same way Elliot was going to do it. Yeah. And to her, turning somebody into a vampire is almost like a punishment. And she would never do that to somebody she loved, which would be Elliot and Sean. 
And so it had this kind of beautiful ending that I was not, I didn't see coming. And so I really appreciated it. It was thoughtful. This, now, this is based on a novel which was written by a woman. And I kind of understand mm-hmm. the female perspective of it. And I'm glad that they maintained that. I'm assuming that the book ends the same way. I can't imagine it ending any other way now that I've seen this. But um, yeah. yeah, it was a real treat. I was really surprised by it. I'm glad we got to see it. It's super rare. Um Hard to find, um, hard to find a really good copy of it, but it was worth it. I really enjoyed it. What did you think? Yeah, I really liked it too. I it's it's a movie that I think works better the second time because it begins with a lot of stuff being thrown at you, and I mm-hmm. the the opening sequence where you get the flashbacks. They never really go close in on Susan Day's face. You 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 know you 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 figure it's her because it's um she's got the blonde hair, but they sort of I guess because. It, it's meant to be her probably younger. Right. So they, they, they just keep a distance most of the time. Um, at the very end, they don't. Like the moment when he kills himself, I think you see her face pretty clearly. But in the opening scene, she's always at a distance. And there was something about the way they did that opening montage that until the very end when she yells Antoine and happens, I was – I don't know that I was confused by it, but I was um, – it didn't connect somewhere in my mind. and And so that's – uh, that the second time I watched it, I was like, "Oh, of course, this is exactly what's happening." And the it's it's funny. There 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 are times. This is one of those movies where there there are, there are times when I wish I could watch a movie for the first time the second time. No, wait, is that right? I wish I because the first time yes. I watched it, I, I got to the end of it and I thought, "Okay, I was that was." That was pretty good. I, I love that ending. I like the actors. I thought they did a nice job and it had a nice pace to it. But the second time, I loved it. I, I was really enjoying it. And I was like, I, I think I had to see it first. And I, I think one of the, the worries I had with it was that when you set up a, a plot line like this, there really aren't a lot of endings you can do. You know, it's either going to be horribly tragic or, or something, some strange wish fulfillment that probably won't work. But this kind of took a, a different ground that that I, I really liked. What else? Yeah, I think uh, uh, Mr. McHattie is very good in it. Mm-hmm. He 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 has a face that looks like he's he's always going to be a bit mean or something like that. He, I, looks, I, I, he I, looks like the hitchhiker to me. Oh yeah, from the yeah. TV show. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. he reminds me of. And and so so the the two of them together was quite uh quite quite lovely. And and I'm 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 convinced by them being together yeah. they have a nice they have a nice rapport throughout and then and then his rapport with pool is wonderful throughout yes. there, there, there's, there's a great moment in I, i'm not gonna get the full line but it's um where he shows up at the scene and she says oh you, you finally showed up and she says is that the same suit you were is that the same outfit you were wearing yesterday and mm-hmm. he says something like it is and it's not an outfit yeah and, and and they, they have a great rapport, and Elliot and, and, and Rebecca have a great rapport. And I just I just love Elliot's sort of just presence mm-hmm. that he's, you know, it's like he's not like a Harker-type character from Dracula where, you know, he's going crazy or he's being, you know, uh, just in a really bad way. He just seems to really like he, – he got a good job as a personal assistant to a vampire photographer. He did. And he's having, he's having a really nice time at it it's um it's it's it was nice to uh, put this alongside death takes a holiday because it is um it, it it's um it's structured so differently and it's put together very much like there there is their love story then there's the vampire stuff then there's the detective stuff and it all kind of you know dovetails in the end into something yeah and um and i am yeah i was surprised i you know like i've said before i get i get worried when we wander 
uh, into like the late eighties and nineties and such. Cause it's starting to lose uh, it. It like, you know, as much as I enjoyed the Tori spelling films, they're not like cinematic at all. Sure. And, and, but this one had a nice style to it. Um, I, I wouldn't call it terribly cinematic, but, but there's a nice style to it. And I got to tell you one of my favorite, one of my favorite moments, I'm looking at my notes here and I love the moment where, um, so, so there's basically a scene where he goes to – Sean goes to Rebecca's house, storms in and goes – she doesn't have a coffin. She sleeps on a slab. Mm-hmm. But it looks like a comfortable slab. Yes. And, and Elliot's like – pulls a gun on him and says, get out of here, man. You can't do this. And she gets up and she has some great moments where she like moves like the flash. Yes. Where she's like on one end of the room and suddenly she's over here. Um, and you think, wow, she's cool. Um, but, but he's sort of like there and they, they sort of had this conversation, you know, where it's, it's like, I wanted to tell you and, and I, I just couldn't. And it's like, you, you could see they're both kind of torn and we don't know what to do. And he, he kind of like, just, he leaves sort of kind of like walking backwards, kind of like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And there's a great scene where he's like walking along the street and the camera's moving a lot and he's kind of moving around a lot and he stops in front of a church, which has a great sort of like. I need to make a decision now. I need to make a decision now. And it's just the, the mix of the camera work and his acting is, is like the perfect sort of like if someone tells you like, okay, you, you can do this or this. Both these things are big, but you got five minutes. And you're like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. And he has this great kind of movement to him that I really like. There is uh, in the moment, in the scene when they are uh, uh, trying to he's trying to you know they're trying to tell each other what's going on but they don't uh, a couple scenes before there's a great moment where he right at the minute where he's like about to they're, they're actually talking about vampires in the scene but she's like do you believe in vampires and i forget his response but like right at the moment where you can tell that she wants to tell him and he's like he's trying to do everything he can to get her to to say it he gives her a hug which is the biggest like uh uh okay sorry sorry to nerd out just for a second but there's a doctor who episode called dark water where the doctor hasn't seen his good friend clara in ages and she hugs him and the doctor hates being hugged and she says why do you hate hugging and he says never trust a hug it's just a way to hide your face and that mm. looks like ex- that looks exactly like what they're doing in that scene. They're like at the point where this big revelation is going to happen. Neither of them can do it. So he goes into this weird hug where he he leans into her and goes down real low, like on her shoulder. I'm, I'm miming it right here, like all of you can see it. But but he kind of goes down low on her shoulder. It's just this weird like I want to ask you to give tell me your secret, and she wants to tell the secret, but neither of them can. And so they they at that moment when it should be like the most intimate and everything, they kind of hide from each other in a hug which I really liked. There are a lot of these lovely moments in the movie. It really is. It re- I was very surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I'd watch it again. Yep, it's it's pretty good stuff. It's pretty good stuff. Um, yeah, I was happy to discover it. Um, I was nice to see. I want to discover a lot more of the old original Lifetime movies um, yeah. because they might be worth seeing. I mean, I like the new ones too. You know, I kind of dropped off the Lifetime train a few years ago because there's a lot of really good perfect parent, perfect wife, perfect assistant and there is one called the perfect assistant which is hilarious the perfect dog like you know they're fun but they, they're really redundant and um yeah. and it's like it's kind of nice to see that they were sort of sampling the waters here and that they made the character so strong and i'm not saying obviously yeah. it's lifetime for women and you want strong women but this was like a really interesting like oh, so much of television is tailored to fit like a mainstream 
you know, mm-hmm. audience. And so when you get somebody like this who's like a female vampire, you don't normally see them this strong. Yeah. And this unique. You know what I mean? Yeah, when she picks Sean up, I mean, you can sort of tell that it's not Susan Day when she sure. actually picks him up, which is you know, uh, unfortunate. But then I, I, I didn't really care, actually, when, when it happened. But it's just like, yeah, she, she the mugger knocks him, uh, knocks him out and she throws the mugger away and then she just picks him up and she's carrying him out into traffic. And it's just like, oh, that's so awesome. And I just I, I like it. It's sort of like I you know what I would love to see. And I don't think it would be a romantic thing. I would love to see um, what is the scores any. Is that the guy from Night Stalker? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he is like the a 100% opposite. He's like a, a brute mm. who's just gross and looks gross and lives in a gross house. And she's like classy and sexy. And I'd love to see like the two of them, I don't know, get in a fight. I don't actually know what I'd like maybe. to see them do. <laughs> something Who knows? Who knows? Well, she's single again, so maybe they'll meet up That's on her true. travels. That's I, I will say for me, the romance really comes at the end of the film with her sacrificing herself. Her mm-hmm. loneliness and um, not sacrificing her loneliness, but sacrificing the chance to f- have happiness with somebody to to let them stay human. And like, uh, like it was a good love story, but it's really about her making that decision at the end yes. to like let go that I thought was so amazing. And that to me is where all of the romance sits. So like when I think about this movie in terms of like the romantic aspects of it. The sex is great. You know, I liked watching it, whatever. But like, sure. Sure. but it was really about that ending you know mm-hmm. it really blew me away and it's really all about robert s woods as the coroner um <laughs> because he's wonderful and i was really excited to see him i can't even tell you how excited i was because Bobby cannon he played Bobby cannon on one life to live originally and um uh-huh. he's one of my all-time favorite actors in the world and i got to talk to him once on the phone and i wish oh. wish i'd known he was in this film because i only got to ask him about being in fantasies i didn't really get to talk to him about mm-hmm. his other tv movies but he shows up he's in um the night they took miss beautiful as well oh wow yeah okay. Um, let me see. Oh, now, do, were you going to uh, – I'd actually like to – you were talking about Lifetime movies. I realize the only time I've really watched Lifetime is when I used to watch Supermarket Sweep and Shop Till You Drop sure, on it back in the sure. 90s. So would you would you get what, – what, do you have the history of the Lifetime movie? I do. Movie? I do. There's not that much production history of Deadly Love. Matter of fact, there's none. So what I will tell you is that it ran on October 9th, 1995. Again, um, some Halloween programming. Uh, it ran on Lifetime, obviously. It ran at 9 p.m., and then it reran at 11, so they had like an encore right after of it. Um, it was directed by Jorge, or maybe it's George uh, Montesi, who is also an actor and who appeared as the building manager in Mother May I Sleep with Danger, which he also directed. Oh, wow. Starring Tori Spelling. Um, okay. the, uh The film was based on the novel Love Bite by Sherry Gottlieb, and the adaptation was by Rob Gilmer, who I know best for writing several episodes of Magnum P.I. and as well as Knott's Landing, which is interesting because there's a, there's a nice melodramatic soapy quality to this. Uh, two well, speaking of which, two well-known soap actors made cameos, Robert S. Woods, who we just talked about from One Life to Live, and Jean Leclerc from All My Children plays um, Antoine, Rebecca's original vampire lover. Um, and then I instantly recognized him when he came on, and I, I, don't, I didn't really watch All My Children, but I got super excited. I love when soap actors show up on TV. So Halloween in 1995 was actually a really interesting time in cable. Um, they were heavily programming the Halloween season. Um, and that's interesting because I think this is when networks kind of quit tailoring their Halloween season to a lot of scary programming and stuff like that. So um, cable kind of was picking up the slack. And even Discovery and the Learning Channel aired documentaries about the paranormal. And he produced a biography series um, on scary historical figures such as Edgar Allan Poe and Hitchcock. 
and um, Lifetime produced a segment on witches for their intimate programming, uh, intimate portrait programming. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Intimate Portrait, but it was like a, I guess it's a documentary series, and they would pick a woman like um, Pam Greer or Meredith Baxter or um, they did one of Claudia Schiffer, and they would just spend an hour talking about their life. And um, they actually had Erica Slezak on an episode. She is uh, from One Life to Live as well. Um, the Pam Greer one is fantastic. I think they did one on Margot Kidder that I really liked. Um, so they actually did an entire episode just dedicated to the history of witches, which I've never seen and would love to. So Lifetime is a really interesting history, and I'm not sure I got it completely right because it was a lot to take in, but this is what I wrote down. So Lifetime was created through a merger between ABC Hearst and Viacom. At the time, ABC Hearst owned something called Daytime, which was uh, which produced a daily dose of four-hour medical programming blocks. It expanded into the Lifetime Medical Television Channel in 1984. It was then renamed Lifetime Television Network, and it sought to capitalize on its female audience. So a lot of the medical programming was actually targeted at women. Um, originally, there were many... Uh, talk shows and alternate programming produced for women. Dr. Ruth at the time had the highest rated show on Lifetime, which was called Good Sex with Dr. Ruth. There was another show with Linda Dano, also from One Life to Live, that I can't remember the name of, but they used to um, spoof it on Saturday Night Live with um, Nora Dunn. Uh, while, and Jen Hooks played the whoever the other host was. While the network was in debt for some time, it promoted its niche programming heavily. Um, and I think one of the big breakthroughs it had was that it obtained the rights to the Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, which would, had just been oh, canceled yeah. from a network, and they picked oh, that's it up. Right. Yeah. And and then ended up kind of getting them a lot of attention. And and their telefilms would draw uh, really strong ratings when they started doing them. So in 1999 or 1990, I'm sorry, it produced three original telefilms, which aired under the Lifetime World Premiere Movie Umbrella. The first one was called Memories of Murder and starred Nancy Allen. So 1990 is kind of a booming year in uh, cable television movies. It was sort of the first year that it became really heavy. I think it started in 1989, and I think it started because of the USA Network. I'm not positive of that. But um, in general, uh, 1999 saw this growth. Um, or I'm sorry, I keep saying 99, 1990. So in 1988, there were no cable telephones produced, and then in 1990, there were 40. Um, niche programming, uh, which was what Lifetime specialized in, was, uh, uh, was doing something called, so niche programming is also called narrow casting. So that means that these channels that were developed for very, very specific audiences instead of these big general audiences would do, they call that narrow casting. And I think they still use that terminology. So Lifetime would be narrow casting. I guess Biography Channel would be narrow casting. Um, Discovery would be narrow casting. So, um, so anyway, this was, uh, so 1990 was the beginning of, uh, sort of the, that sort of growth of the made-for-cable television movie. And then by 1995, we had Deadly Love. And that's all I have. And that probably sounded really awkward. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that sounded <laughs> great. I, I would watch a show called Good Sex with Susan Day. I'll let her know. Please do. Please she do. Might, she might be interested in that. Yeah, she's so good. I want to see her in yeah. everything. So you know what? I lied. She did a movie called The Night Mary Jane Cried. Is that what it's called? Hold on. Let me look it up real quick. The Night Mary Jane Harper Cried. It's a real early film for her from the 70s. Mary Jane Harper cried last night. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. I've heard the title. But... Oh, MG. Oh yeah. You have to see this movie. So I don't remember much about it except the ending, which is which should have been on my. I did a top ten. Oh my god, television mo movie moments, mm -hmm. and it should have been on there, and I didn't add it. I'm only thinking about it now. And also, it has. Do you remember on Laverne and Shirley, Mrs. Babbage had a daughter that was like mentally retarded? Do you remember this? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she's in Mary Jane Harper cried last night. 
Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> it's the only wow. other thing I've seen her in. And so those are the two things about the movie I remember. But Susan Day is amazing in it. Okay. Um, she blew me away. I saw it like as a teenager and I could not believe what I was looking at. I was Ooh. like, it was just so beyond Laurie Partridge. And she uh-huh. was also in Cage Without a Key, which is a woman in prison movie. Oh. A TV movie. And I wrote about briefly in my book, um, Are You in the House Alone? Because I did a thing on women in prison films. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another one. So yeah, she's actually had a really interesting career. Oh, she was in that miniseries Malibu, which I've been dying to see. So she's done a lot of stuff. But I would say her, some of her early stuff shows a real glimmer of the strength she had as an actress. But a lot of those films are probably lost now. So oh. you can't maybe you can't really enjoy it as much mm-hmm. as you would normally, but um, yeah, I highly recommend her in anything right now. Um, she's amazing. So yeah, run out yeah. and get, see every Susan Day movie you can. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Start with Deadly Love. I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was. Yeah, like I said, I was very surprised. Jorge Montese did a nice job, but I just imagine Jorge strolling in and he's got a beret on and a scarf. And all the cast and crew are there, and he just stands in front of everyone and goes, From now on, we speak only of love. Susan? And everyone goes, Susan, love, love. <laughs> When's lunch, Jorge? Love. When's love? Noon. We're having Swedish meatballs. You know, be fantastic. that's funny because they're, the love in Mother May I Sleep with Danger is like zero. Mm-hmm. It's zero. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's yeah. He's an interesting guy. I wonder if it is George or Jorge. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I looked at that and I wasn't really sure how to pronounce it. So, mm. what are you gonna do? Yeah. I like Jorge. Uh, yeah, Jorge works. Jorge. It makes it. I. I like him with his beret and his. Uh, and it's just his director's chair just says yeah. Jorge. And he wears jodhpurs. Of course. Of course. He's so great. And he's got. He's got one of those riding crops. It's like. It's like Jeanette Zawark. Do you think he looks like that too? <laughs> I do. I actually do. I really yeah, do. I think I do I too. Ju- I, I just got Jaws 2 on Blu-ray, so I'm all set. Oh, oh, oh my favorite. Oh, so, so fun. It's That's so the only good. Jaws only Jaws film I own on on anything. Oh, my so. God. I own them all. I love them all beyond words. <laughs> but the second one is like a slasher movie with the shark, and so that's what makes it like the best in the series. Plus, mm. it's lots and lots of shark. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, so that was good. That was the first one I saw on TV when I was a kid. And that was mm, I saw the perfect- first one first. Perfection. On ah. TV. Oh, I loved it. I remember staying up all day when it aired at the ABC Sunday Night Movie because they used to show theatricals on Sunday. And I stayed up all day and I drew pictures of sharks till like 9 p.m. <laughs> I did. I was obsessed with sharks. Uh, yeah. I did. You still are. Huh? Yeah. I did the shark cage when I was in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, did I, you? How was it? It was amazing. They dropped me into a cage and they took me out into the water and they said I was only short of beating their record of the person to stay out the longest by five minutes. Wow. And, okay, here's another Amanda myth. We're getting off topic. But since we're done with Deadly okay. Love, let me just tell the story yes. real quick. Yeah. So we get there, and um, and there's one other person waiting to get into um, the shark thing that we do, the shark tour. And so we're waiting, and the guy's like, hey, um, I'm doing this extreme vacation. So he's doing all these, like, extreme sports on his vacation. And he's like, um, and he's telling me about them, and they sound pretty cool. And he's like, yeah, your husband should do those. And it's like, oh, I can't do those? You know what I mean? Like, you could tell it was like, oh, this is for men. This is extreme sports for men. Men go extreme. Yeah, and so and he was a total jerk. And I was like, really? And so we got on the boat, and there was, like, a couple other people on there with us. And we went out there, 
And I started to get really freaked out. I was like, oh my God, they're going to drop me into a cage with all these sharks. And I don't know if I really want to do this anymore. This is not so smart. And so and he's talking about his extreme vacation and whatever. And so we get out there and they put the cage out and you start to see fins because they're chumming. Oh, and wow. I could not wait to get in the cage. I forgot everything about my terror <laughs> and I just got in the cage and he got in there with us and he could only stay in for a little bit of time and he got sick Oh, and they had wow. to bring him in. And then, so they let me stay out and I stayed out past everybody except my husband. He stayed with me. And the only reason why we went back in was because he wanted to go in because uh-huh. I was in it to win it. And so sure. like, um, we started with six foot sharks uh-huh. and then they got to be 14 feet. Whoa. Oh, it was amazing. And there were no great whites. So only once had this expedition place ever seen a great white. That's really rare. But um, but the sharks were big. And they get so close to the cage that sometimes their tail comes into the cage. Whoa. Yeah, it was amazing. It oh was amazing. And as a matter of fact, I would still be in the water right now if they didn't pull me in. Because <laughs> it, was, it was like the coolest thing I've ever done. I would never do anything cooler than doing a shark cage. And so the cage actually is like only partially submerged. So you mm-hmm. just need a snorkel to do okay. it. So you actually only go like a foot underwater. Do you know what I mean? In mm-hmm. the cage. And they have these little things inside to hold on to so you don't have to put your hands around the bars. Okay. And uh-huh. you just like hang out with the sharks. And they feed them. And you just wait till they come around and they want to check you out. So they all come around the cage. Uh-huh. And they swim around it. And they swim at different distances. Sometimes they get really close. And sometimes they're a little farther away. And when the six-foot sharks came, it was like, oh, that's really neat. But when the 14-foot sharks came, you realize how small the six-foot sharks were. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Yeah. And you, it was like, oh my God, that is the biggest thing I've ever seen. And it was it was just fucking amazing. And I would do it again if I had a chance. I loved it. That does sound fantastic. I, I, I don't know about that guy in his extreme sports, though. Did he offer you some Lady Doritos after that? Yeah, I don't know. I just remember it was really condescending. And wow. like, I'm not like a, I'm more athletic now than I was then, but I was in really mm. good shape then. And, and it was like, I, my endurance is really good. It's always been really good. I've always had a high aerobic endurance and it's like, it's like, it was insulting because he's some yeah. big guy. He thinks he can do something better than me, but he couldn't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so mad. But he got sick on there. So you got to laugh at him. I did. I still talk about him. I hope he's listening to the <laughs> show. I hope he's in the TV. He's like, oh my God, that was me. I mean, such an <laughs> ass of myself. I didn't realize that was Amanda by night. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> yeah. But like, like they took everybody else in. And mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? And they're like, you can stay out for a little while longer, but we got to go back soon. And I was like, leave me out here. And um, I just had a blast. Oh, that's cool. So, and it's because I... of Jaws. It's because it's because seeing those movies as a kid made me really, like they were scary, but also mm-hmm. they were really fascinating. So oh, like, yeah. I wanted to be near a shark and I did it. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying you can make your dreams come true. That Laverne and Shirley song is right. Schlemiel, Schlemizel. Yes, we're making our dreams come true. You want to get near a shark? You can do uh, it. Just do it in a cage. I, I've never, yeah, I, I've never done the shark cage. I, I've, um, oh gosh, what have I done? I haven't done my, I, I repelled off a tower. Did you um, really? Yeah, yeah, like a 50 foot tower. Oh, shit. That was, and it was funny because, um, uh, I did it. It was in Boy Scouts, and so I was on the tower, and I was, you know, and you have to, um, you know, they got the rope around you, you know, and you slowly back yourself out to the edge, to the edge, to just like your toes are on the very end, you know. And if you look down, there's just like a 50 foot drop, yeah. and you're holding onto the rope. And I'm there, and I was shaking. Sure. And I thought I, I, I didn't think I'd be shaking, and I went down, and it was fine. I got to the end, of the bottom, and I was fine. I was like, wow, I'm shaking. This is crazy. I found out I had a fever. Oh, so, so, so I thought, so I wondered, would I have been shaking? Probably a little bit, but a I little. felt like I was, sh- 
I was shaking more than I should have been. Have you and seen? Like Dan- have you seen your mother wears combat boots with Barbara Eden? No. You might relate to her a little. Okay. That's all I'm, I'm gonna. Say. That's that's on the list. Okay. That's on the list. All right. <laughs> so anyway, enough about sharks. Uh, there is a TV movie shark attack film. Nice. Um, I thought there might be. Yeah, there's one that. I, well, there's several. I mean, through the years, yes, obviously, obviously, Sharknado yeah. and whatever. Yes. Spring Break Shark Attack is amazing. That's a 2005 film. But um, but there's one from the 70s, and maybe we'll get to it. It's an interesting film. Um, but it's not necessarily Jaws, is what I'm saying. But um, anyway, uh, let's do the feedback, dude. Let's do some feedback. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now it's time for feedback. Okay, so um, we have two pieces of feedback. One is uh, audio. Uh, we'll do that second. And one is from our friend Jack, DVD78, whom we love. And he wrote Jack DVD... Yay. Hey, Jack. Yay! He wrote Jack DVD78 here. So Dead takes a holiday and decides to terrorize a wealthy family on holiday on their private island. Yvette Mamou is the carefree, fearless Peggy who comes into contact with David Smith, a.k.a. Death. Death takes a holiday so he can learn... So he can try to learn... Uh, why humans cling to life so desperately but become smitten with Peggy along the way. David has the strong belief that bringing people through the threshold of death into the next world is the best thing ever and you just can't imagine why anyone would want to stay alive. To hear him talk about life, he'd want the process from womb to the grave as soon as possible. There were moments I wondered what a reimagining of the story would be like. While death is on holiday, there are no recorded deaths. Accidents have occurred, none resulting in death. It made me think. In Death Becomes Her Is Oh, in Death Becomes Her, Isabella Rosalini's character warns that those who take her magic potion, paraphrasing here, take care of you and your body because you will be together for a long time. So could you imagine if the living escaped death only to survive with severed body parts, burst bodies, and so on? Mm -hmm. Burnt bodies. I was thinking burst bodies. Oh, shit. Um, I wasn't able to watch Deadly Love. I could only find the first 15 minutes of the film on YouTube and didn't want to start something I couldn't finish, but I was able to take in Burke Convy and Monty Markham's perfect holiday tans. I hate them (laughs) both because I can't tan. Until the next show, stay away from David Smith. So he brought up something interesting when he said burnt bodies, and I thought he said burst bodies. Do you remember that movie? It was an anthology film called uh, Offspring, and it was retitled. It also sure. the title yeah. from Whisper Burr, to yeah. yeah, from yeah. a whisper to a scream. And do you remember in one of the segments they cut somebody up into little tiny parts? But oh still yes, alive. Yes, is that the Civil War one? Which one yes, is that? Yes, I think it yes. is. And yes. and he's in oh, like a yeah. bag. Uh-huh. And the bag is moving. Yeah, that's what yeah, that... I that's what I picture because that's gonna happen to somebody. Like they're gonna go into a wood chipper or something, mm-hmm. and then what are you gonna do with them? Yeah, yeah, that's that's gonna be yeah. And it's funny that death doesn't uh, death doesn't think of that. You know, like uh, maybe. Well, he does, but I don't. I don't think he has so much feeling for people that he or that, understands that matters, pain. Yeah. Maybe mm. it's just something that he does. Yeah. Well, yeah. he does have that moment in the movie. Uh, going back to real quick, where he uh, he cuts him his hand. That's right. Yeah, and so it's like, what you know? It's it's there. There are a few moments where where you think Monty Markham is going to do something like where like where Yvette leans in and kisses him and says, "Oh, that was just a kiss," and he would look. He's going to look at her and go, "What is kiss?" <laughs> or "What is love?" <laughs> that would have. But he does. He doesn't. He doesn't. I'm glad he didn't. So, okay, thank you, Jack. So, thank you, Jack. We're going to listen to Adam Gordon's uh, feedback, and it's always really brilliant. So, just sit back and listen. 
Adam Gordon here, and Death Takes a Holiday feels more like a play than a movie. It's a remake of a 1935 film, which itself was based on an Italian play. I really wonder how the stunning female protagonist, played by Yvette Mimiu, didn't become a bigger star. I can see how Death became distracted from his duties at first sight. Some of the dialogue became heavy-handed, such as the scene where the mother, played by Myrna Loy, almost broke in to kiss him goodbye when she learned that Death had come for Mimiu's character. But the suffering of injured Vietnam soldiers being forced to survive while death was taking the weekend off made the point that the film was trying to make. This film had to be tough for our esteemed host as she had to watch Burt Convy, famous on YouTube for blowing puzzles on Super Password, summarily get kicked to the curb. This brief film is definitely worth a viewing. Watch for the dreamlike quality of the photography, though it could have been a bad transfer. I was so glad to rediscover the romantic tragedy Deadly Love from 1995. Rather than coming to TV movies via horror or the movie of the week, I started started watching them during the 90s, thanks to the USA world premiere movies and the Lifetime movies. I remember seeing this title on Lifetime around the time of its original airing, yet it is extraordinarily hard to find now, as it sadly only received a VHS release. While Lifetime movies today are very formulaic, these films were once more sophisticated and frequently erotic, like this unmistakably 90s treat. This film features the I'm still totally in love with Susan Day, as vampirous Rebecca Barnes, a photographer by day, I mean dusk, and a predator by later in the evening. We see in flashback that she is a sad, lonely figure. After taking weird photos of randoms in a nightclub, she meets up with what appears to be her boyfriend. He takes her to an alley to smack her around and have not very consensual sex, so she responds with a totally appropriate fatal neck bite. It turns out that Rebecca has left a trail of blood, well, very little blood actually, across the country for years. This time, the NYPD is on the case, with Detective Sean O'Connor, played by Steve Stephen McCaddy, alongside his partner, played by TV veteran Julie Connor. While this movie on the surface plays like a traditional procedural, with the evidentiary noose tightening around Rebecca's beautiful neck, the emotional backdrop provides surprising depth. She lives an eternal life of sadness and regret after submitting to her vampire lover Antoine, who later committed suicide. Assertive yet feminine, Rebecca preys solely on aggressive men, the type that reads a pickup artist manual, leaving more sensitive types to be potential love interests. The film plays as a neo-noir, but day is isn't a traditional femme fatale at all. She loves men who treat her right, are masculine, yet vulnerable. She has hopes that O'Connor might submit to her until he admits his knowledge of her crimes and hesitates. Thematically, sexual tension permeates nearly every frame of this film. Rebecca was always looking for both love and prey, though her sloppiness reveals that part of her wishes to be caught and have her eternal loneliness be brought to a merciful end. There was also a clear unrequited love of Connor's character for her partner, following him into a locker room and a restroom in an effort to to get his attention. Also, photography as foreplay was a common trope in 90s films. Day's performance, while low-key, was spot-on, given the material. The director had a bit of trouble with McCaddy, having him alternate between brooding and goofy, and the cliches. Did you know that cops eat donuts? That harried police chiefs get pissy with underlings? That some people aren't sure of anything since the day John Lennon died? That New Yorkers love wandering into traffic? And that New York Times crossword solvers enjoy a decent Merlot? In the end, I can identify with the pain of meeting someone in middle age and having circumstances conspire against you and the regrets of having an acquaintance commit suicide. So there was a bit of poignancy in refining this film 23 years later. This supernatural tear-jerking double feature raises some interesting questions. Could you believe that something supernatural is intimately occurring in your life as the evidence mounts? Unfortunately, I probably couldn't. And could you submit to the potential of eternal love with the risk that your lover could end up being selfish and using? To restate that question by looking 
looking at both films, is a chance at eternal happiness better than a guaranteed lifetime of regret? Upon reflection, I would say yes. By the way, I'm an XXX Radio fan on Twitter. The significance of the handle being that I used to write a curation blog about the formerly large Sex and Relationships podcast space. While that's a story for another time, you'll find that nowadays that I just correspond with friends and hosts that I got to know off air. I also try to find Forbidden Love, also starring Yvette Mimiu, and Amazon Video, having taken my rental fee, said that the movie is no longer available. Reason number one as to why piracy doesn't bother me in the least. Thanks again so much, Amanda, and I'll be listening. He crammed so much into four minutes. We could really just yes. put. We could really just put that on and then just go home. Yes. Yeah. That's. <laughs> he, yeah. He, yeah. There's some great points of that. I is so is is Deadly Love set in New York? Did we get that wrong? I thought it was I, San Francisco. I feel like they clearly say it's San Francisco in the film, but I could be wrong because I didn't write it down. Yeah, I didn't um, write it down either. I, th- I, I assumed it was I, Vancouver, to be honest with you. I, 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 yeah, yeah, I knew where it wasn't. Dallas, New oh, Orleans, Poughkeepsie. Denver, Poughkeepsie, <laughs> Syracuse, yeah, Yonkers. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, though. He really picked up on the tragedy of the character, you know, and, and that she was also really interesting looking for love and looking for prey. And what I thought was so interesting is that she wanted a guy to treat her okay. So she was actually, so he's talking about how she was different than uh, what a normal femme fatale is stereotyped as. And that she was actually looking for somebody who would love and respect her. And yes. um, and that's kind of interesting. I never really thought of that before. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, and his point too about the, um, that he, she preys on the aggressive guys was, was yeah. actually, it was, that, that was something obviously I noted, like the jerk pushing her yeah. in the alleyway there and things like that. But it, it wasn't something that actually, I'm, I'm glad he, he spotted that because that, that was something I saw. And like a little bit later, she's walking down the street and a guy, you know, guy comes up and says, you want to make a quick hundred bucks? And That's she right. Goes, you know, so, so it, it, there is there is that um, there, there. Thank you. Thank you for that. Adam. Thank That's you. actually pretty compelling in terms of like comparing it to, um, have you ever seen I Desire with David Naughton? No. So oh. I can't remember who the philosopher is, but there's like some new postmodern philosopher, not new, new, but new to like, postmodernism i guess to that this era and um he uh he wrote about the desire to be desired mm-hmm. and i don't know that much about the theories behind it but like um you can apply to there's a whole theory he has and you apply to film and literature or whatever but like i desire is actually about the desire to be desired and so um it's about a, a female vampire who preys on pretty shitty guys and she goes undercover as a prostitute uh-huh. The film's not really about her. It's about David Naughton hunting her. But um, but I always thought that was really interesting. And, and I kind of want to compare the two films now because I've been wanting to like relook up that film theory and dive uh-huh. into it. Because when we discussed it in class, when I went back to school a few years ago, I, I was trying to talk about I Desire, but I wasn't getting the point across to my professor oh. about how I thought that it was so interesting that the character was named Desire. Uh-huh. And it was about the desire oh. to be desired, right? Uh-huh. It's his, it's his theory, yeah. just right That's there, right. like literal. Yeah. And um, so anyway, so I, so it's interesting that he brought all that stuff up. But yeah, it's really, mm-hmm. really good feedback. So I, yeah, thank you, thank you so much. I don't I... even know what to add. I did tell him though. I emailed him back, and I told him that he might also want to check out Yvette Mamou in um, something called uh, Obsessive Love, which we'll cover at some point, I think, because it's really mm-hmm. good. It's, oh, sure. It's, yeah. it's about a girl that becomes obsessed with a soap actor. Oh, nice. And she's like the stalker in it. Mm-hmm. And it's got real soap actors in it. There and you go. Does she wear those little shorts that she, she wears? She doesn't. Oh. She doesn't. She that, looks, oh, she looks gorgeous. Bad. It's kind of like a really sadistic version of Nurse Betty, which is also okay. a really good movie. But um, like, uh, I'd like to get to that. And I thought about that. I thought maybe there should be an Yvette Momo uh, double in our future because we mm. just talked about her last week too, didn't we? 
Yeah, yeah, Snowbeast. Or not last yeah. week, but last. Uh, last, last, last. Which we just recorded. Yeah, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's oh, I can't even. I can't even keep things straight. All right, this was a really hectic night. So I hope everybody got what I was trying to say tonight. Is all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I think. I think we got our points okay. across. So it turns out I picked uh, a winner double. Yeah. Oh, it's great time. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. That worked out really well. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, very interesting two films. I quite enjoyed them. Yeah, I did too. It was really fun. Um, I can't wait to see what happens next. Yes. Yeah. Next romance. Uh, next Valentine's Day should be pretty yeah, romantic, guys. It's yeah. Hold on, guys. The romance will return. There's <laughs> all. There's always some sort of romance going on, you yeah, know. Yes. But uh, but this is specifically when we yell it to the to the to the rafters. This is when we only speak of love. Only love. I'm gonna try only to love. find a soundbite of Louis Jordan saying that. I'm sure he does somewhere. And I'm oh, gonna, he must. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm maybe, gonna find maybe, it. Maybe in Swamp Thing. Maybe, maybe. I think the, you must Adrian say it in Park. romance theater. I just have to oh. rewatch every episode to catch it. Is that are we gonna do that next year? Will that I'm, be our double? I'm really hesitant. I'm really hesitant because I don't think they're really up your alley, and they're two hours long. <laughs> they're endurance tests if you're not really into your like hardcore. Uh-huh romance so and soap operas and blah 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 i think Uh it's a very talk about narrow casting there's like it's me and like two other people who can sit the romance theater (laughs) you know what i mean and that's probably the people who starred in it so Uh um anyway so that's the end of our show so what i'll say is um you can contact us with feedback so we're going to tell you what our next episode is going to be but you can always talk about the movies we've talked about already or anything else TV movie related. We'd love to hear about it. Um, movies you like, movies you'd like to ask us about, movies you think might uh, we might enjoy and you want to recommend. I know uh, Tristan Comer, I don't know if he still listens, but um, he recommended Deadly Lessons a long time ago. And it's been on my mind, but I just haven't found something to double it with that I felt really strongly about. But, um, but I do listen. A lot of people have seen movies that I haven't seen because um, there's thousands of TV movies. And so... You never know. You might bring up something that we know nothing about and lead us to a gem. I would really like that. So there's many different ways you can contact us. You can go to www.tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com and you can always leave comments on our blog post there. We also have a contact us page, which um, will let you get in touch with us in a very um, a variety of ways, including uh, Twitter, which we're uh, located at TV Mayhem Podcast. We are on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show. And you can also always email us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. So please drop us drop us a line. I know this time yes. we kind of did these last episodes back to back. Well, we didn't do them back to back, but my editing, I took forever. Sorry. So they feel like they're coming out back to back, but I should be on track after this, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we'll just catch you guys up with what we've been doing. This is our little yeah. two-minute shameless self-promotion segment. Yes. So um, I just recently hosted uh, my first uh, made-for-TV mystery movie at the Alamo with Jose. Yeah, with Jose Imba. Um, it was great. Yeah. Uh, I'm not really sure I'm supposed to say what I showed because it's secret. But um, we had a sold-out audience, and a lot of I was really surprised by how many people hadn't seen the movie. Um, and people seem to genuinely like it. It was actually really scary for me to talk in front of all those people because that's the largest crowd I've ever talked in front of before. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was getting used to it. And then it was terrifying. Um, I think I did okay. Somebody actually brought a copy of my book to sign. Um, somebody I'd never met before. And somebody from the Austin Horror Society asked to take my photo. So it was really weird. It was really fun. Um, the movie seemed to go over really well. I wore a great dress. 
I'm just yes. that out there. Yes. I had a really beautiful dress on. Um, I'm also doing, so the American Genre Film Archive does something very similar. They do a once a month uh, secret screening, and I'm going to be hosting it next month. Oh. On the 2nd of March, I picked a really good movie. Um, I picked a non-TV movie. It was actually not my first pick. I will say that. I had uh, five on my list. Uh, this was one that Joe thought would be good. And I'm really excited about it because I wavered on it. But he thinks uh, it'll go over really well. So if you're in Austin and you're around on the 2nd of March, please come see me um, at the Alamo on South Lamar. If you're in San Antonio the next day on the 3rd, then you should come to the San Antonio PopCon, which is being held at the main library in San Antonio. I'm going to be giving a presentation on television movies. Yay! And, yay, and doing a book signing. So um, everybody should come to that if you're around. It's free. Um, they actually put me up against a Star Trek panel. Hmm. So seriously, guys. <laughs> Support. Come see me, because I would go to the Star Trek panel first, probably. But... Um, <laughs> So I know that's going to be really, and there's a cosplay event like in the other part of it. So it's, I've got some stiff competition guys, um, but I'll be there uh, at one thirty. And so if you are in San Antonio and around, please come by and say hi. It looks like it's going to be a really neat event. It's the first year they've done it and the librarians are putting it together and they're really passionate about it. Um, I've been talking to one librarian in particular and she's amazing. So um, go and support your pop culture. Um Yay. And I also have some super secret projects that I have coming up and I haven't been able to talk about any of them and I don't know when I'll be able to talk about them um, because they're all things that will be announced at a later date. And so that makes things really rough because I just wait and wait. <laughs> but as they come up, I will let you know they're all really exciting. Um, and I think that's it. Oh, oh, I almost forgot. So Dan and I are doing something called the... Um, Classic oh, yes. TV blogathon, and they're uh -huh. doing great TV villains. It's gonna uh, be running on the 18th and 19th on all the different blogs. You can go to the Classic TV Blog Association and you can look up um, who's participating. I'm gonna be writing about Betty Davis as Madame Sin in the early 70s TV movie with her and Robert Wagner. Uh -huh. And I forgot you're doing Bigfoot from this six million six million dollar man. man and Bionic Woman. Yep. The Yay. Five. Yeah, it should be fun. Should yeah, be fun. that should be really fun. And somebody's doing Catherine Wentworth from Dallas. Oh, I saw that. That's yeah. awesome. This totally, somebody's doing Boss Hog. Um, it's going to be a really neat uh, blogathon. So um, we'll post links on all our social media when it happens. But uh, keep an eye out for that. I think that'll be fun for uh, our listeners. Um, and so, Dan, can you tell us about your special guest that you mentioned last time? Oh, yes. Uh the Adventure uh, Super Train. By the time you hear this, Adventure Super Train will be back with episode 39, and it's covering th uh, three segments as always. First segment is the wonderful Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Wrights, and I talking Green Hornet, and myself talking Green Hornet, and I, um, myself and my wife talking Ellery Queen Mysteries, and the new old show. We're going across the pond. Uh, we are going to uh, the UK, 2004, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. And I am brought on as my guest host, the great, the mighty, the powerful, Gore Blimey, host yes. of Trilogy of Terror. So Gore, Gore is is there, and uh, I I've got the 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 um the uh, the day after we're recording this, I think I'm be, uh, I will be posting episode thirty nine, so it should be up for you guys to hear. And Gore's awesome, and and so is Kristen and my wife, and it's going to be fun. It's so exciting! Fun. I love yeah. Gore Blimey. I did his Trilogy of Terror for the Ghost Stories for Christmas. 
Mm-hmm. And it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And I don't normally listen to the podcasts that I'm on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like the guest spots. And as a matter of fact, I just listened to this once while I edit it. You know what I mean? And then it goes yeah, out to yeah. the world and I forget. But um, I was re-listening to the ghost story episodes because somebody was having a problem with some of the sound or something. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to check it out. And I just, I ended up listening to like half an hour of it. And I was like, oh, I miss Corp Limey so much. He's such <laughs> was, a wonderful guy. And he's so much was, fun. Yeah, we had we had a lot of fun talking the uh talking the 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 first uh, few episodes of the show so yeah Yay, i'm so excited and what else is going yeah. on uh oh uh one minute with blood lake and ice is we're in the vicinity of minute episode 24 which is minute 24 blood lake and ice uh, uh in um iced uh they we are in the scene where they they found a carl in the closet <laughs> and now that now they're all sitting on the couch or on the floor and um uh, what is it? Uh, Lisa Loring's character is having her white wine and carrot, and they're talking <laughs> about Eddie, the sadly deceased Eddie. Aww. And and over on Blood Lake, they just had the scare where they heard like the killer running on top of the house or something like mm-hmm. that. But they all kind of blew it off and went back to bed. And we are about to go water skiing, so that's fun. And um, yeah, um, you yeah, know, obviously, my '80s action movies on the cheap is still out and about. Um, I'm working on another book right now. Fingers crossed. Um, uh, that'll go somewhere. Maybe I can talk more about it next time. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, that that's that's it. Uh, pretty much, you know, we're just hanging around and and being good. That's right. We are. So yeah. let me tell you what our next double feature will be. I'm super excited about this. Um, we are gonna do a Kathleen Beller double, and we are gonna watch. 1981's No Place to Hide, which is one of my all-time favorite TV movies. It almost made my top three when we did mm. that first episode. And another movie she made in 1985 called Deadly Messages. Um, so it's interesting. Kathleen Beller stars in Are You in the House Alone? And that would seem to be the movie I should pick because that's what I named my book after. Mm-hmm. But um, I love that movie. I think it would go better with something else. So I'm holding off on that. Uh, but I think that... She these are like her main three TV movies. I'm actually not sure if she made other TV movies. To be honest, I'm, I think she has, but she was kind of an ingenue during this era, and she was like um, really good in these telefilms. And I'm really excited to to talk about them more, especially No Place to Hide, because I have yet to write about it really anywhere, and um, and so now I get to dedicate some time to it. I, I believe it's also directed by John Llewellyn Moxie. Mm. So oh, nice. get to Oxy. share. Yeah, we get to a little little John Llewellyn love, which I'm always up for. Um, and Deadly Messages is really fun. I did a, um, if anybody wants to get a look at uh, some of my thoughts on it before uh, we do the podcast, I wrote about it on my blog and I did it as a co-blog with Kinder Trauma. So you can read about Lance's oh, cool. thoughts on it too. And he's brilliant. So, um, oh, and that's right. I almost forgot. Uh, Lance and I did a, a co-article on Kinder Trauma about the Boogans. Hey! Yay! We did it because it's Boogans. snowing and we love the snow. And if you want to hear our top five reasons why each, while we love the Boogans, check it out. I will uh, tell you, answer two, four, and six or whatever is Fred McCarran. <laughs> I can't help myself. Did not, did, I, I didn't know that Rebecca Balding married the director. She's married a couple people. Because okay. I feel like she was married to one of the producers of Charmed and then married another producer from Charmed. Because oh, okay. you know, she was on Charmed. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I just uh, not every episode, but she was. I think she mm-hmm. was reoccurring on there. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, whoever marries Rebecca Balding is a lucky guy. 
Yeah, that's definitely. just settled, right? She's like the most adorable thing I've ever seen. I yes, mean, I love her. Love her. Um, maybe Rebecca Balding did a TV movie we can do. We can talk about it a little hmm. more. But um, anyway, that's what we have going on. So we'll be back. Oh, we may have a special episode also between this one and the next one. I will let you know. I'm still uh, confirming the dates with um, the person I'm going to be interviewing. We're bringing somebody on who um, is going to be really interesting and going to have some really interesting things to say about TV movies. So um, I will let you know when that's happening, hopefully at the beginning of March. So just stay tuned. See everybody later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye, guys.